1: in three, two, one. We are saying, as long as there is breath in our bodies, we will not forget
3: you. If we don't deal with this issue now, the problem will get bigger. The lack
1: of empathy. These women need to get over themselves. <laughs> We're
3: the one
2: for cork and ready to talk. Can we
1: just talk? Call
2: 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 83 396
1: Email opinion at 96fm.ie.
2: The lines are live.
1: Let's kickstart the conversation.
2: This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan
1: on Cork's 96fm.
4: What a gorgeous morning it is out there. I must say, there was light. You, you noticed the, the hour going back this morning because there was it was lightsome as I was sitting into the car, just starting to break into a little bit of light. And that's been missing for the last few weeks. We'll have that now for a few mornings. And then it be very dark again until maybe half of seven, quarter to eight, it'll be dark late, a even into into December. It's just a lovely, lovely, lovely morning out there. And they're telling us, I'm, I'm seeing in the newspapers, this morning, that we're in for some cold, crisp stuff over the next while, which would be very, very nice. Good morning, eighteen fifty-seven one five nine nine six. I trust you survived the rigors of Halloween. I took the batteries out of the doorbell. I don't mind telling you, I did. That's just I me, mean, Not, not, no. It's the dogs. They, they lose it. Absolutely lose it when anybody comes to the door. So I didn't fancy. I didn't fancy that. Good morning, and they're all heading back to school today, and we don't know what's going on in schools. We know from the COVID cases last evening, we know that it is now rampant in the 5 to 12-year-olds, and let us not put any twist on that, let us not play it down, let us not lie to ourselves. It is rampant in the 5 to 12-year-olds. Yes, most of them are not getting sick. Most of them will have a snuffle and a bit of a cough at most. There are those who will get very sick, unfortunately. They're few and far between, we'd like to think. But it is rampant in the 5 to 12-year-olds. Is it right that they're going back to school this morning? Tony Holohan says it is. The government say, yeah, it's fine. Let them go back to school. It's not a big deal. You wonder, though, is it? And, of course, there's no contact tracing in schools now. So you don't know who's got it and who doesn't have it and and all of those complications let me bring back a man who hasn't been on the show in a little while, Professor Anthony Staines uh, from DCU. Anthony, good morning Good morning. It is precarious it is rampant in the 5 to 12 year olds. Is it, are we taking risks at the moment?
5: Well it is high across the whole population. It is particularly high in younger children at the moment but it's pretty high yeah. in almost every other age group and it's going up Uh, It's actually going up at about the same rate right now in every other age group, which is is disturbing at one level. So, yeah, I think we need to take it more seriously. The government policy has been essentially that vaccinations will deal with this. Mm. And the vaccinations are fantastic. And without vaccinations, we would have every intensive care bed in the country full and Mm -hmm. people waiting outside for ventilators. Mm-hmm. We don't have that, so thank God we don't have that. But even with vaccinations, as the chief medical officer said himself, um, you know, vaccinations will not control this Delta variant. And that seems to be, I think that's true, mm-hmm. unfortunately. So the w- one way to go about this is to look at other countries that have successfully kept uh, case numbers down without lengthy lockdowns and I've been taking a look at what they've done in South Korea where there's there's been a very heavy emphasis in South Korea on vaccination obviously but also on ventilation, Mm. on masking Mm -hmm. they have the equivalent of a COVID pass for people who want to go to pubs restaurants and nightclubs and they've they've not had any national lockdowns, Mm -hmm. they Mm -hmm. have had regional lockdowns for short periods of time to control major outbreaks which is is the right, you know, is the right way to yeah, do it. We've we've talked
4: about that before, and we've been promised that there'll be no more national lockdowns here. We hope against hope that there won't be. Should there be contact tracing in schools? The teachers are saying, please bring it back. It gives us something to work with.
5: I think there should. I think it it needs. I think the government needs to show they're taking schools seriously and they're taking contact tracing seriously. And that that has been a key part of the successful response in many other countries. We haven't done it properly here. Parents in schools have been recording for months now uh, endless major outbreaks in schools. Schools closed, classes closed, children sent home because of outbreaks of COVID. Now the contact tracing has effectively stopped. number of reported outbreaks has gone down. Mm. But there's, there's no doubt that the covid is still there and it can spread from children to adults mm. and that's in some ways more worrying because you're you're right that not many children will be serious with this most will have a very minor illness that you'll hardly notice some will have more serious effects but they can easily spread the virus to older people yeah, right. and you know as, as reinfection becomes more of a problem in older people which is what we're seeing now Children can spread this virus quite widely through our population.
4: Do you think that NIAC, which I think is meeting today to discuss uh, healthcare workers, because we have 3,500 healthcare workers now absent due to COVID, do you think NIAC is dragging its feet a little bit, Anthony, on this?
5: I think NIAC needs to move quickly, but they also need to move carefully. I think at this point, uh, the healthcare workers is probably a no-brainer, and I think NIAC will Recommended. I think where the challenge is going to arise is when the European Medicines Agency approves vaccinations for primary school age mm-hmm. children. So the US FDA has already done that. The EMA, which is the European one, is conducting its own independent study of the evidence. The, they don't just copy each other. They, they work from the ground up. Um, and they will decide but if I were a betting, a betting man, and I'm not, but if I were, my bet would be they will decide to go with it. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it lands on NIAC's desk. Yeah. So, you know, I, I would urge NIAC to do preliminary work now, you know, to review the materials. The FDA materials are all public. I don't know about the EMA materials. I don't know if they're available. Mm-hmm. But th- th- that material is there. And NIAC can look at it and begin to form their own view mm-hmm. as to what their recommendations So they could be. be working on it now. They
4: might not announce a decision for a while, but they could be working on what's there now.
5: Yes,
4: yes. Are you I- concerned as we head into winter, Professor Staines, the government tell us there will be no more lockdowns. The, um, the economy will tell you it can't afford another lockdown. Are you concerned heading into winter, Anthony, that we're going to weather this?
5: But I really hope there won't be any more lockdowns. We, we've argued against lockdowns as a group, really, since the beginning of all this. know, WHO said in April, March 2020 that lockdowns were not a good long-term control measure. Last, only right. as a last resort, correct. Yeah. yeah, and it's, it's reasonable to use a lockdown. If, if things are going out of control, use a lockdown to sit on it. Get a chance to look around and see what is going on and bring in control measures. But we we haven't followed through on that. We haven't brought in a full range of control measures. We're still having discussions about whether to have ventilators in schools. Mm -hmm. We're still having discussions about whether primary school children should wear masks or not. In many countries, those decisions have been made. The ventilators are in the schools. In some countries, primary school children are wearing masks. In others, they are not. But at least the decision has been made. Now, our government has made some very good choices, They've continued with COVID passports, for example, which their colleagues in the United Kingdom have decided to abandon. They've also continued with strong advice about continuing to wear masks. And uh, in fact, I see just yesterday, there's been a a study published from South Korea on the impact of masking in public transport. And it it suggests the impact of masking was really quite big. Mm -hmm. It, It makes public transport not 100% safe. But, but much
4: safe. safer, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, 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 we just need to take great care going into the winter and continue to mitigate. Professor Staines, I'll leave it there for today. Thank you, as always, for being with us on The Opinion Professor Anthony Staines from DCU. Let's focus on the school situation next.
2: Can we just talk?
4: The Opinion Line on
2: Cork's 96FM.
1: With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life, and health insurance. C-M-I-G dot I-E. Let me
2: show you what it's all about. Simon Murdoch and the best music mix.
1: Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96FM. If you love hearing these guys on the radio. Hi, Ed Sheeran here. Hi, this is Adele. Hey, it's me, Justin Bieber. Then join me in the afternoons for the biggest tunes plus huge giveaways. You're going to see Ed Sheeran. Oh my God, thank you so much. And sure, I'll have you on for a chat as well. I'm good, how are you? Played that new Adele song there. Gonna crack open a bottle of wine and some tissues. (laughs) In the afternoons, in Cork, make sure you're here with me. Let me show you
2: what it's all about, it Simon
4: Murdoch,
2: midday to 4 p.m. on Cork's 96 FM.
4: Let us go to the schools then, because they're all going back this morning after midterm. And we know that teachers were saying that the contact tracing has to come back because it just makes it easier to, to deal with the situation. Seamus O'Connor is a regular on the opinion line, he's principal of School Ridge in Crosshaven. Seamus, good morning.
6: Good morning, PJ. How are you this morning? Good.
4: How important, very well, thank you. How important would contact tracing be for you there in your school heading into what could be a difficult few weeks?
6: Yeah, PJ, I was on the show when they rescinded the the previous arrangements in relation to close contacts in particular and the contact tracing and it was imperative, um, I spoke to you as I said, I think it was on the 27th of September, that you know it, it was like schools walking into a knife fight and all we had was a set of feathers without the close contact contact tracing that we had previously. The reality is, in, in the old, with the, old other, with the previous regime, and bear in mind that this regime is still in play in secondary schools, it was only removed from primary schools, if a child in a pod um was positive generally the pod were contacted by public health themselves and then they were put out to be tested immediately um and then it was it was given consideration as to whether the rest of the class etc the teacher were made to be put out whereas under the current system we're not even contacted by public health if a child is positive it's purely at the discretion of the parents whether they contact whether they tell us or not that their child has COVID. So that leaves schools in a highly vulnerable situation, particularly at a time when it's it's widely now accepted that schools are the most vulnerable part of our society at the minute. I would hold the case that, look, we are trying to keep the economy open. I'm deeply happy to have the children back in today, PJ. And I've said this every time I've been with you, that it's far easier for us to have the children yes. here both for their benefit rather than trying to do the remote learning. However, reality is reality. PJ, you you know, if, if you're you've had experiences where you've had friends, children in your house and, you know, if you're left minded them for a few hours, that worry if, in case they bang their head off the corner of a table or yeah. something. And that's where I'm left with now, with two hundred and thirty children. That's my feeling every day for yeah. two hundred and thirty of them. I won't be told. I won't be contacted um, directly by public health if there's a case, unless a, a child contacts us, or sorry, a parent contacts us. That's daft. It is. I, I don't get it. Um, and it, I mean, I I I write to our local TDs here in my constituency. I have four permanent TDs, and I only write to them when it relates directly to. Um, issues that directly affect my school in relation to SEN or SET, etc. But today I will write to them because I don't understand why our government over the weekend it's widely now accepted that schools are vulnerable and why they won't reintroduce the previous contact tracing it's not fair to put the onus on parents now in relation to if your child is a close contact and they may or may not even find out if their child is a close contact but it's not fair to put the onus on parents that they need to now administer antigen tests etc (laughs) etc to figure out if their child is positive or not i feel that's a level of Uh, you know, abdication of responsibility at this point, you
4: know. One of the concerns of parents that you speak to with young children, and as I said before, my children are well out of the school sector now, but the fear is that you could end up with little Johnny or Mary being a close contact. They have to go home for four or five days. So what does mum do? She has to go to work. What does dad do? He has to go to work. It upscuttles yeah. home life and
6: people are worried about that. Yes, absolutely. And look, again, even in my own perspective, One of my children has ASD needs, so I want them in school as much as they can. They missed out in more or less two years. Look, I I completely appreciate that. But there is a short term factor here. If you have to miss five or six days of work as opposed to five or six months, you know, in relation to lockdowns or if you have. But you're people who don't get get paid when they don't go in, Seamus. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I I see both sides of the coin, I really do. But I suppose from a from a professional standpoint, where I'm speaking to today, is the fact that I'm in charge of the responsibility and welfare of 230 children, which equates to 200 families, and then a wider sphere of the the Crosshaven community here, which I want to help to protect. Sure. I, I'm more than willing to do my part in relation to keeping the school open. We're we're in instigated and, and continuing on with everything that we can do, but I do I really do feel an arm is tying behind my back when I I don't know I won't be contacted directly by any state agency if a child in my school is positive and I do feel that's unfair at this point and look I've been on in the past where I've complained about certain procedures and so forth and that's fair and I accept that the stakeholders have a limited and a finite level of resources but right now today I do believe that the most vulnerable element of our society in relation to COVID is our pupils and our preschool pupils as well PJ. Sure. What I don't get and I'm reiterating and I stand corrected on this is why is it that the previous contact tracing arrangements still stand in secondary? schools, but not in primary. It's been rescinded in primary, and I don't get that.
4: All right, leave it there with you for today. Thank you very much, Seamus O'Connor, Principal of Scalvrida in Crosshaven. Laying it bare. It's crazy that if a child tests positive, he as the principal of the school isn't told unless the parent decides to pick up the phone. It's just crackers. 1850 715 996. Change of tack next. Very tragic story. Uh, Cork couple in Australia, living the dream, living the dream in sunny Perth, and then landed with a horrendous shock about two and a half weeks ago. That's next.
2: Can we just talk? The opinion line on Cork's 96 FM with
1: McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie.
4: There's a GoFundMe running at the moment for a Cork couple in Australia, the Rickens, John Paul and Susan. They've been living in Perth since 2011 when they moved out there because John Paul had no work. And they've got two small children and they got married out there and everything was just great. Successful, happy, living in a fabulous part of the world. And then tragedy strikes two and a half weeks ago when Susan fell ill. I've been speaking, I spoke on Saturday to John Paul. So John Paul, it would be only a couple of weeks now before you'd be 10 years in Australia. Before we get to the the, the tragic news of the illness, Susan's illness and all that, tell me about going there. Tell me about the decision to go there.
7: Right, well, um, I was, Susan had a grading job. Susan worked in Brougham Thomas and Patrick Street, and um, I was working for a company, Architectural Industrial Quartons, in uh, Centre Park Road, in the the Marina Commercial Park. Um, But it was a bit of a downturned economy back then, and I from my job in five days to four days to three days and eventually I was only working half one day a week and uh so I was 26 so I would no income whatsoever coming in and uh we just we were going for a walk down the Black, Black Rock Castle one day and I just sounded road to her how do you fancy coming to Australia like I said because I said I'm making no money like um would you give it a shot and uh she said look we we'll go off for it and we we'll, we'll go off for 12 months yeah with 12 months only and uh we're here 10 years now yeah there's a lot of people from cork a lot of people from the north side actually um in port at the time and uh i knew I'd friends in darwin and sydney and all over australia but i was just um i was in contact with a couple of lads everywhere and yeah i said port was a bit like Cork, like you know a bit, e- bit easy going with sydney is a bit mental like but um yeah so we uh we took a chance on port then like and uh so we fell in love with the place then, as I suppose, and for sure, over the 10 years then we just, it became home to us.
4: Yeah. Are you citizens now, John Paul, or what's the story?
7: We got our PR, which is the Permanent Residency. We got that in 2014.
4: Right,
7: right. So we Permanent Residence, yeah.
4: Yeah. And when did Susan then, when did Susan start to feel unwell?
7: Well, it was about two and a half weeks ago at her PJ. She, um... I came home from work one day, she was feeling a bit bit tired, a bit lethargic, you know, she was a bit short short of breath and you what know, I seen a couple of bruises on her body, like just on her legs there and her and uh, her hands like but um so we went to the doctor and the doctor said um he checked her her iron count, like she's her iron's a bit lower from the two children from the two pregnancies. Yeah. But um so he checked her iron count and he said well, her iron count was uh, unbelievably low. Like, so I said, I'm oh, surprised she got about a bed. Mm-hmm. So she went in uh, two weeks ago and the Saturday. She went in and she got the iron transfusion. Um, and they said about 24, 48 hours, like she should be feeling back to herself again. Mm. And uh, I came home from work on the Monday. We had a bit of a dinner and she threw it all up in the toilet and oh um, she brought Lucy into bed and I was watching the TV out with uh, my son Leo and um, I could just hear her screaming and uh, so I ran in and she was holding her abdomen there like towards the, the appendix area you know yeah. and uh, so I ran in and I asked her what I was going on she physically she couldn't talk she couldn't she was in so much pain she couldn't talk she couldn't answer me and uh, so sure I panicked whatever and I eventually got hold of one of the girls and mm-hmm. One of the girls, um, one of the girls came down then and uh, brought her to the hospital. I stayed home with the two children, and um so she was brought in on the Monday night then and um, so originally they thought it was appendicitis, and then they were saying it was inflammatory bowel, something with the inf- inflame of the bowel. Yeah. Um. uh So the first two nights they were calling her the mystery woman. They knew what was going on, so she. Pains in her chest, she pains in her abdomen and the whole lot and um, then they said it might be a blood disorder and she went for this scan and that scan and so it's the first three days we were we had no clue what was going on. So then the following day then this they said it looks like um, lymphoma. Right. In the chest they found a lot of nodes under our armpit and, and in her chest and uh, but they were still on a, Hadn't no a clue why her abdomen and was in pain. So they, they were still told, thought it was appendicitis or, again, an inflamed bowel.
4: Like, how was her health generally? Like, she, on your youngest is only a few months old.
7: PJ, she's, um. the only other two times she's been in hospital is for the children. Crikey. She's... She had, as I said, um, Leo's two and a half, and she had Lucy in March, second of March, this year, seven months ago. Right. She had a C-section that was there, but she's never been re- really sick, never been really ill. Um, she's a strong woman, right, so she's not. she wouldn't moan or groan about anything.
1: Yeah.
7: Um, there's never been any signs, as I said, we were... We were up in the playground last month there and uh, so we were, she was climbing up, up the slides and the ladders and the whole the whole lot and there was nothing. It was only two and a half weeks So as I said, when I came home. Yeah. She you've... was feeling short of breath and, um, you know.
4: And and when did they make the awful discovery?
7: Well, I I was sort of sad. So last Friday week, um, I came up to visit her with a couple of friends and... Um, she was in Great Spirits. We were a good chat and we headed off. And uh, so I went away. And then I, I think that was around one o'clock. And she rang me at four o'clock. And she said, look, there's a lot chance since you're gone there. Um, I'm being rushed there for emergencies, emergency surgery. So I originally thought, again, they were going in for appendicitis or whatever. Yeah. And um, so I came up to the hospital on Friday night and they were, they were saying they weren't going to leave me in, but then they got through, they found out I was her husband, so they left me in for 10 minutes. So I briefly just asked the nurse and I said, um, can you tell me what's going on, please? And she said, look, they, they went in, they did, um, the keyhole so- surgery, so they, they made a big incision in us, in our abdomen. They went in the cameras and they, they found a huge, um, mass or I suppose tumor on her, on her bowl mm. and, um, they removed the tumor for her bowl. And that's all I knew on the Friday night. Um, I had to leave her in because she was in recovery. And I came in then the following day and um, they said it wasn't the lymphoma at all. Originally what they thought, um, that they believed that it was the, um, cancer of the bowl. And that was just causing the lymph nodes to go to her chest and her armpit. And uh, so that spread up her up, body that direction. And... Um, it was the Sunday then when they came in and said it could be tor- it could be terminal cancer. Oh no! Um, yeah, so that was pretty hard to take. I was, I was, yeah, I was a bit hard to take. There was, I couldn't tell you much about that, then, no, because I, I know. said I was in a bit, bit of, bit of a shock, you know. Um,
4: who who broke that news to you? Were you together at least? You were.
7: We were, we were, we were together. I was, as I said, she was grand. She was recovering, like she was. She she was knackered tired, no, she was like uh, again like just coming in and the oncologist came in and she was just came out straight away and blunt and she says, um, look, uh, we thought it was the lymphoma there, like, so you know, we could um treat you that with the with the chemotherapy. Um but she goes, Look, it's not that we found the bowel the cancer of the bowl or whatever and Basically, she just came home and said it, like, mm. just, um, you'll die from this cancer, like, that's, that's the words that came out of her mouth. Have
4: they, have, they given, have they given her time? How much time have they given her?
7: Um, well, today I said, I don't know, and um, they said they're having um, a board meeting on Monday Um, because they couldn't start her. They put a line, a port line in her chest for the chemotherapy, but um, they said... Um, they can't give her the chemo plan till she was uh, healed from the the operation of the bowl, you know, from the sure, surgery. Sure. Cause um, she, her, but she wouldn't be strong enough to fight the infection. So as far as I know, I know as from notes I'm talking right now. There, um, I think all the the big wigs or whatever they're having the board meeting on Monday, I believe, mm-hmm. to um, to discuss again what we're looking at the time wise um what extent what exactly we're looking at. Um and then maybe like um start to sign the chemo plan then from there. Um as I said she's she's got a stoma. Like I suppose people that know don't know what a storm is. It's basically she's been hit with a colostomy bag now, Um which they've told me that She'll have at least half for nine to 12 months. Right. Um, she's got a large clot on her left arm. So her arm, her left arm is about four times size of the right arm. And um, so she has to give herself an old injection, you know, um, two injections a day you know, into the into the stomach to thin the blood, like so trying to get that swelling down, trying to get rid of that clot in the arm. But that could be a couple of weeks now as well. She has you no know, movement in the left arm. Just completely, completely, she said, just like, just like carrying a brick, a brick of concrete. Um, is, she, is
2: she
4: in pain?
7: She, um... She's fantastic, no. So she, like, they'd be giving her this medication, that medication. She was... I came up yesterday morning, No, oh, she was in agony. She was, um... The right side of her body, you know, and her hand has given her the biggest trouble. She was in fierce pain, so, um... I said, oh, I had a chapter doctor, doctors. Like, Cause like, because they were on about discharge, you know, yesterday or tomorrow, and I says, she's in a natural pain here, like, um, so they upped her dosage, her pain, her pain, right. her pain medicine there now, um, I don't know what they were saying, oxycodone and tramadol and all this, whatever, but it seems to be doing the trick, like she's had, um, she's been great, fantastic now, uh, the last two days, but, um, coming and going, like, you know, if yeah. you just she's, she like when she wears off, they are know like she she do not sleep a week like yeah. um
4: And I suppose what, what it's all about now, I suppose John Paul the, the, the treatment plan and what they'll come up with and and what they'll do and
7: But this is it, yeah.
4: You have a long hard old battle ahead, but
7: Yeah, look, um to be honest, so PJ it was um the first week no I was an emotional wreck, like obviously it was a bit of a roller coaster, but this week there know, as I said, is you know, I've kind of got myself together a little bit no better and um, you know, I just composed myself. Look, she's she's some so woman for a moment, I tell you that no, she's she hasn't complained once, she hasn't whinged once, she's all into the positivity, like poor the mind, like she has she, she has her affirmation cares every day that she posts on Instagram and or, like, as I said, her strength gives me strength, you now. and uh, as I said, she's only like she's she just basically just said, like, you have to laugh. She goes, look, we never thought it happened to us, but it has, and we just have to take it, take it day by day, you know, step by step, and, um, you know, give it the best shot we have, you no, know, really, like. I know, I know.
4: And your friend, Grania set up the GoFundMe, which I see is, is fairly rocking, like, there's nearly seven seventy three and a half thousand Australian dollars. I'm not too sure what that is in euros these days, but it's going very yeah, well.
7: Yeah, so... This yes, grind, yeah, grind, yes. um, Or one of our friends there. She's from Belfast, and uh, she set up the page, and a couple of other buddies there, a couple of the girls came on board there as um, the members of the GoFundMe page there. So I, I, I think they started it. they tours there their Friday night, but um, yeah, as I said, 73 grand there. It is, it um, is overwhelming. Tis, tis, um, as I said, I'll even take this opportunity to thank everyone that's um, even messaged me and rang me and um, even donated it's um, it's actually blowing us away like we can't thank people enough for their generosity and their support it's um, it's unbelievable as I said there's people from all all over the world like um, strangers people have never met me life and they are um, donating money it's unreal unreal as I said I couldn't um, I couldn't thank people enough now for their generosity it's unreal and
4: what's the What's the health cover like?
7: So over here, it's called um, tis Medicare. So medi- Medicare is tis like your medical care at home, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But um, it's pretty good, no, PJ. To be fair, like like we're in um, we're in the Royal Port Hospital, so that's a public hospital. So um, again, like you know it's it's tis free of charge, really? Like the mass, it wouldn't do that. You're not, you know? You have your private and your public over here, I suppose, like home, hmm. but. Um, the medical care was pretty good like you know Yeah. as I said you don't have to pay for the doctor you know yeah. but yeah it is a lot better than all I know to be fair and uh, yeah I couldn't I couldn't really knock the, the medical care side yeah. of things which is there, great. Really. it's fantastic yeah
4: G- Gronia said that that the idea for the GoFundMe is to raise the kind of money that you're going to need to help with this fight yes the medical care may be free but, the, but there's plenty more that you're going to need to
7: raise it for oh no it is like well to be honest, no, like, as I said, um in cheap over here, PJ, like, it's um, pretty expensive, now. I suppose. Like, with the rent, no, I've I've the two children in their care, they don't know. Um, um, just the cost of living over here, either, 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 either you know, it's just pretty expensive, like, you know, and uh, Susan, obviously, she won't be able to go back to work. Um, I'm off work at the moment, no. I'm out on the sick leave at the moment. I might have... I'm not too sure yet. I might have another fortnight or something, you know, yes. whatever. Um, every, pay, every penny that's donated is just going to, go in a, to look after Susan's yeah. care. Um, I'm not too sure about the chemotherapy plan, no. Um, obviously, we have the clostomy bag and all this stuff, and yeah. I think you have to pay for all that. Again, I need um, again, from Monday, I'll get a clearer picture right. of what we're looking at plan-wise, and what we're going to do, you know, but, um, she's going to need full-time care, like, um, so, again, I'm not even too sure what we're looking at again, like, you yeah,
4: know. Yeah, and it's a very worrying time. I know that part of it will be used to get her, her mum and dad out to her, and I suppose with COVID and everything, John Paul, that, that's that been one of the hardest things. No one can get out to her at the moment.
7: Well, I can tell you there, no, the, um, well, like, just an update for you there No, on that, um, We've been dealing there with um, an Irish charity over here, They're called the Cladda Foundation. Right. Um, and they've, they've been around for a couple of years. So basically, they get anyone that's in a bit of strife like ourselves, they get, um, they help, um, you know, trying to get paid and something, blah, blah, blah. But they, um, so I've been dealing with a girl called Heather there with the Cladder Foundation. And um, so she's been trying to get up here and so, and... She rang me yesterday morning and their exemption visas were approved.
4: Oh, brilliant. Um,
7: So her father rang me about three hours ago. He he was in Dublin Airport and they were just boarding their flight to London.
4: Oh, that's wonderful news, John Paul. And by the time this interview runs on the programme, they'll probably be there, which is fantastic
7: news. They should be here. We're looking at four o'clock, so we're looking at about... 9 o'clock a.m. cock time, they should be here.
4: Fantastic. Uh,
7: but then that's, they'll more than likely still have to do the two-week quarantine.
4: Yeah. That'll be a hotel, a Hotel, will it?
7: That'll be hot hotel. As of right now, my belief is when they land in Port, they'll be picked up in a shuttle bus and whisk, whisked off to a hotel. I'm not too sure where yet. Um, hmm. We were thinking, we were trying to... Um, see what we could do with home quarantine and all that. But as of right now, they, mm. it is pretty strict over here in Port, really, you know. Yeah. There's there's, not, there's no one loading her out.
4: Is Susan aware that they're on their way as we speak?
7: She is. I, I mean, I got the news this morning. I rang her straight away and the messenger, and I told her, so they gave her a huge lift, like, huge yeah. boost, you know. Um it's just, uh, as I said, I've got some fantastic friends over. I hope um, the ball ship didn't help out. But um, as I said, like she's going to need full-time care. And the two young, as I said, a two and a half year old and an eight-month-old. My boy is um, Leo. He's two and a half. And Lucy is eight months old.
4: They're too young to understand what's going on. That That's, that's hard for you, though, isn't it, John Paul? Looking at them and knowing all this. and
7: It is. Um, when Lucy... She's not a bother, one. So she's only eight months old, so she's neither here or there. Leo, um, he he he's, he's at the edge now. Here. He's um, he's crab out, like he's um, he knows something's going on. As I said, um, I've had to I've had to get friends to pick him up from daycare, because I've been at the hospital. So he's used to seeing my face. So he you know he's a bit confused. The poor little fella. Yeah. Um,
4: Is he asking questions?
7: He is like, you know, he's you know, he wakes up most nights no crying for mammy, you know. So that's been a bit tough now at home, like um so I've just yeah, basically just told him um you know, Mammy's in the hospital and she has a sore belly, you know, and the doctor's giving her medicine. So she was in she's she's she had an infection as well, so she's been in isolation for the whole week. Um so we couldn't touch her or give her a kiss or anything. Um, I couldn't bring the children up. But uh, they allowed me to bring Leo up today. I brought him up for a an over today, so that was good. She was in good spirits. Um, he was pretty. He was happy himself. He her him a bit of a kiss and a cuddle, so that yeah. was good.
4: How are they like in the in the hospital with COVID restrictions and all that?
7: Well, to me, well, actually, like as I said, Port is um, we've zero cases now. Now, if you went back four months ago, no you would you wouldn't have been loading in, and. Which is grand, as I said. all I do know. I don't. I don't have to wear a mask. Um, we just come in, as you said, with your signs up. But um, I just have to just sanitize my hands, mm-hmm. and so um, you I know, keep a fair distance, whatever. But um, it's not like anywhere else in the world, really. It's a bit, bit bit normal at the moment. To be honest, like
4: yeah, that helps.
7: It does. Yeah, helps a lot. Like as I said, like but um, I have I uh, I've had. To, um, yeah, I, I had to stop the visiting hours there because, um, as I said, she's 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 not there. Like she's too much energy there, so like I I cancel visitors there. Enough the last two, three, two three days because she's she's just burning up too much energy. You know? Ah,
4: yeah, ah, yeah, yeah.
7: And hopefully we we might get her discharged by Monday. Hopefully, but again, every day changes mm-hmm. and every day I get a different story and a different sure a different response from the doctor. Like.
4: And come here to me, who's looking after you? You've an awful lot to take on. You're, what are you, thirty, thirty-six?
7: <laughs> 36? Um, look, to be honest, no, look, as I said, um, I, I have a lot of mates over here. They've been fantastic. Mm. I, as I said, while they're just me down the last two weeks, um, just the generosity, I've... I've had guys coming down, out, know, cooking meals for me. <laughs> I've had um, I've had people you now just looking after the children and just coming down and just offering to help out. Yeah. Um, the first week was tough. You now, as I said, I didn't even know how to reach out and ask for help. But mm-hmm. look, we've got a close knit of friends. Like we've got a a lot of friends you now from Cork. Uh, a lot of friends you now from all over Ireland that we've made over the ten years here and just people all over the place. So they've been helping in, helping out. Um but I'm good, I'm good, PJ. I'm good, like, I'm good. Susan, like to be honest with you, you know, it's Susan has been helping me a lot. Really. If, uh, would you believe it or not? She's as I said, her positivity and her um and her strength has just got has got me going every day, like, you know. Yeah.
4: Are you are you frightened for the time ahead, John Paul?
7: Um you know, like I'd be lying if I said I wasn't. Mm-hmm. So I'd be lying if I, if I if she said she wasn't. But look, I even if we get a deadline on Monday, or whatever, there's only words. There's only words. Um, I know plenty of people have been sick for years and years, and they've lived. They lived. They've lived for for a long time. Um, so again, I, I can just. Obviously, I'm scared of Monday and see what they're going to give me. And But look, I'm trying to stay as positive as I can for myself and Susan and the children. Boy, just like I said to her, look, whatever they say, whatever they say, look, we'll take it. And uh, we'll just go with the flow. And I just my main my main objective is just to get her home now, get her comfortable and um, give her... Give her Give her the good more good days and bad days i suppose and just make sure she's happy and
4: you sound like you're a rock solid couple
7: to be honest as i said like we've been with each other 15 years now i said we got we're married we've been married 6 years now in January. um there's not a bother. like as i said she's she, she's looked after me for 15 years so i suppose this is payback back in a way but um <laughs> you know, as i said like we are yeah, as I said, we've been like anyone else in any other relationship or any other couple. We've we've had our ups and downs, and we've had our hardships. And all that. We're, as I said, when we've always said to each other, once we stick together, the two of us, like we yeah. we be grand, like we can we can take anything on ourselves, like you know.
4: Well, you know, with an attitude like that, you're 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 making a good start. Go back to that conversation that you had down near Blackrock Castle all those years ago. Would you do it all again?
7: In a heartbeat, in a heartbeat, as I said, like, oh, Cork is a is home and forever be our home, but the journey, the journey, as I said, Susan gave me 12 months, she was like, not a chance, she, you know, I miss me mum and her sisters and the whole shebang, and yeah. she fell in love with Portmore than I did, um, and as I said, we just grew and grew as the years gone, and, uh, I, I have we both of us we haven't regretted a thing as I said um, we've made our life over we're both happy um we've made some extraordinary friends along the way um yeah as I said they, had, they, they like any other Irish person that comes to Australia or any part um, the sacrifices the family like you know you miss your family every day like but um
4: yeah, yeah. your your own people john paul your, your your own family when was the last time you saw them?
7: So I went home in um I went home in 2019 um just before the pandemic actually. So we brought Leo home um we got Leo christened in family church for he was 6 months old so we brought him home for the christmas um of 2019 yeah.
1: Hmm.
7: Um but um as I said um Leo was 6 months old so they they haven't they've never met Lucy you know yes hopefully hopefully you know Parents will get to meet her now in two weeks' time with help. Of God,
4: all right, we'll share all the links to the GoFundMe so people can continue to help.
7: Yeah, look, um, yeah, as I said, PJ, just um, when I heard that, um, uh, and I appreciate thanks for uh reaching out and doing this interview or whatever. As I said, look, I was, yeah, you know, like I am just skeptical, whatever, you know, telling your story, whatever, but look, if it's helps with awareness, and Hmm. helps with fundraising, whatever, and just helps, like, give Susan the best, best chance, like, whatever lays ahead in the future, then, um, by all means, like, hopefully, like, just by just having a chat here, just, as I said, it's it's for her, it's for her care, and that's all I care about, really.
4: All right, fella, well, listen, you look after yourself, all right, and glad to know you've got great friends around you there, and please give Susan all regards when you're talking to her.
7: I will, PJ, and uh, thanks very much.
4: An Extraordinary guy. Just an extraordinarily nice guy. Um, John Paul Bricken dealing with awful news and dealing with it in such a solid way. We have shared the GoFundMe on our Twitter. If you want to find it yourself, you go into... Uh, GoFundMe and you'll find Help a Terminal Mother of Two And all the story is there It currently stands at 77,620 something Australian dollars Which is about 49,000 euros
2: Can we just talk
4: The Opinion Line
1: On Cork's 96FM With McCarthy Insurance Group Call them now for motor, home, business, farm Life and health insurance CMIG.ie.
2: The lines are live. And we're
1: ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996.
2: Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696.
1: Email opinion at 96fm.ie.
2: The opinion
4: line with PJ Coogan
1: on Corks 96 FM.
4: Yeah, if you'd like to help the Rickens, you go into GoFundMe and just look for help a terminal mother of two and you'll see the picture of a couple. Uh, he is wearing a pink shirt and has a beard and a moustache and she's behind him in a kind of a black dress and they're holding two little children. It's a gorgeous photograph, actually. It's a beautiful photograph of the two of them uh, and they're two little little ones. If you want to help out, that GoFundMe for the Rickens currently stands at 77744 Australian dollars, which in, in our world is just about 49 thousand yo-yos and they're trying to raise as much as they possibly can for the unbelievable expense they're going to to face. Kate says they're tough, tough people. They're great to show such strength. Mags says she's no words listening to John Paul. For news he's no doubt still trying to digest. He tells the story so well, wishing himself, Susan, and their family well. You know Mags, I sat down to to talk to him Saturday. Um, I was kind of saying to myself, right, look, this the we'll chat now for maybe 10 minutes and and whatever. And I just relaxed into the conversation with the guy. It was like we'd known each other for years. And before I knew it, the thing was nearly half an hour long. And we just ran it in full because it's such a tragic story. And he tells the story so well. He's such a lovely, lovely guy. Such a gent. Um, And I can imagine she is the very, very same. So anything that we can do to help them, uh, we will certainly do that. And we've shared the GoFundMe on our Twitter. Can I mention at this stage uh, a guy who passed away last evening? Um, He's a fellow I only ever met a few times. I would never say that I knew him or that we were friends, but through the industry, we would have met. Um, And it was sad, very sad last night, to read of the passing of Simon Young. If you were into dance music and remixes and live mixing. The best radio show for many, many years was Simon Young's dance show on 2FM on a Saturday night. It was just a phenomenal show and he was a great, buzzy DJ and he would be doing the the dance show before he'd go off to do his own gig. And I drove to many of my gigs uh, accompanied by the sounds of Simon Young's dance show. And uh, he passed away yesterday. Lovely, lovely fella. Great broadcaster. Great voice. And a fabulous knowledge of music. And uh, another, another huge signing for Heaven FM, as we say in the business. But uh, rest in peace, Simon. You will be missed. 1850-715-996. I mentioned at the top of the programme, it is uh, 55 days to Christmas. Now, for me, it can't come fast, fast enough. You know me. I love it. I absolutely love Christmas. I love everything to do with it, except maybe the weather. But o- other people dread it. And they dread it for a particular reason, that those conflicts and those problems that can afflict a family. And you know those ones that kind of, they go to sleep for months and months at a time. You, you, they, they never come up. They never discuss. They never raise their heads. It's at Christmas that they will be discussed. It's at Christmas that they will raise their heads, maybe through drink, maybe through people seeing each other for the first time in months, particularly with the pandemic now. So how can we prepare for the inevitable conflict that Christmas can bring? It can be a small thing. It could be a, a couple of loose words as you're passing a mince pie. But it can lead to real grief, real strife. And you don't want that. So are there ways that we can avoid it by preparing for it in advance? Catherine White is from the Family Therapist Association of Ireland and joins me. Good morning, Catherine.
8: Good morning, PJ, and thanks for having me on.
4: Delighted, because it is something uh, my enthusiasm for Christmas is is, is widely known. I annoy the Uh hell out of my listeners, (laughs) but at the same time I always get the call Do you know what, PJ? I'm dreading it because such and such a thing will come up and there could be a row, sure. and if there's drink taken. So we are seven, seven and a half weeks out now, but we can prepare, can we?
8: Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's, it's very helpful, even if we can just acknowledge that for most of us that the Christmas period is like a pressure cooker, and that it's very much an artificial environment, because for most of us, we're spending time with family members that we possibly haven't seen for a year or longer, and very often you're actually at close quarters. You're together, in you know the family home, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And when that happens, we all revert to type, and historical hurts and vulnerabilities and family dynamics are resurfaced. Mm-hmm. And I guess we all then revert back to the family role and the the, the, the script is set. So if, if your role in the family as a youngster was as the strappy teenager or the bossy older sister it's it's very common that if you return to the family home and you're spending a long you know long periods of time with your immediate family that those old wounds and vulnerabilities will resurface mm. and that then you will you will act accordingly so I think I think first and foremost having an acknowledgement of that uh, is really really helpful Um I also think with couples um PJ that obviously we all bring our own our own lived experience to the relationship and our idea our ideas of what a perfect christmas is or can be is very different but most of us don't don't spend the time to have that explicit conversation with our mm-hmm. partner so i think you know in preparation for christmas i think it would be really useful for couples to sit down and to have a discussion as to what does the perfect christmas look like and mean mm-hmm. to them Mm-hmm. And deconstruct what perfect Christmas means, um, because for one member of the couple, it might mean actually spending all the time with immediate friends and family, and for the other partner, it might actually having lots and lots of quiet time. So I think having that discussion about what does a perfect Christmas mean, mean to me, what does it look like, and how how what do we need to do so that each member of the couple can enjoy Christmas and feel like it, it was a success?
4: Particularly within families, Catherine, Christmas tends to take a pattern. There are things that are always done, and they're always done yep. around the same time. The things you do Christmas Eve, things you do Christmas Day, things you do Stevens's Day. They're always done the same way. Generally, they pass off okay. But there can always be the one relative, the one uncle, the one auntie, the one cousin. You only ever see them at Christmas, mm-hmm. and they can get a bit stroppy.
8: Yes absolutely, and we all we've all been in that situation if you know that there's a history of conflict with a particular relative and you know if there's a red line issue for for example with vaccination, you know agree that your that conversation is not going to happen. Yeah. Have some strategies with your partner, for instance, if a conversation comes up that you know is going to create conflict. Don't engage in it. Remember, conflict takes two people. Have your strategy that your partner will deliberately know at that point to jump in and to deflect the, the conversation onto a completely different topic. Yeah. Or you exit the room and take a break and come back in. Yeah. If you is, have, is, there such,
4: is, is it useful to have a, a safe word like, yes. are we alright for butter? Yes, or something ab- like that.
8: Absolutely, 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 and having something like that is a wonderful comfort because even if you don't use it, you know immediately that your, your partner, the person who's in your corner, knows if, if if trouble is brewing and can get you out. Now, what I would say also, though, is that sometimes, sometimes with a, a relative, you may have the relationship that you could have, you could meet up with them beforehand and have the conversation, especially if there's been past histories of you know blazing rows or whatever, mm-hmm. and have the conversation with them and say, listen, we've gone down this road before, what do we need to do differently or what topics do we need to avoid as first cousins or brother and sister so that we're not going to create World War Three at the dinner table.
4: Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, the, the effects of the pandemic, of course, last, last year it completely banjaxed Christmas. Mm-hmm. Our, our hope is that this year we'll be able to have as close to a normal Christmas as we've been able to have for... As possible. But with that, it brings it brings risks. People haven't seen each other for a longer time. People Mm -hmm. have been maybe maybe taking a drink or two at home. And like you said, vaccines can raise their heads. Restrictions can raise their heads. Attitudes to various things can can raise their heads. Can you declare the Christmas dinner table a covid free zone?
8: Oh, I think absolutely, you definitely can. And especially if you know that there are people in the company that have a very different view on the whole vaccination um, issue. Now, that said, I would also say that, you know, your own health and your family's health is your primary responsibility. Mm -hmm. So if you find yourself as uh, a parent being invited to to a family lunch or a gathering and you know that there will be unvaccinated people there and for you that's a red line issue, I think it's perfectly acceptable then to, you know, put your own health and the health Mm. of your family uh, first and foremost and say...
4: That is going to come up, I suspect, Catherine, in some families, that there there will be one person who is just saying, nah, not happening, not doing it.
8: Yeah. So I think then you know again clarity, clarity is key here. And if you feel really uncomfortable and you don't want to put your own your own health or that of your family at risk, that you know if you f- and have the conversation with your partner mm. and you may decide that you have to decline the invitation. Can
4: that in itself cause Rose?
8: It can absolutely. But again, if it's a red line issue for you, you know I think mm. again we all have a responsibility, don't we, for just for our own our own health mm-hmm. and the health of our children and partner? Yeah.
4: So. Again, it's 55 days out. Now is the time to be sitting out, sitting down and... Because, like I said, with many families, Mm -hmm. there are certain things that happen at certain times of the Christmas. We love them, but we also know that each one brings with it its own risks. So you sit down now and have the
8: conversation. I would, absolutely. I think it's really, really helpful that we've all been recruited into this um, into unrealistic expectations of the perfect Christmas. So I think maybe as a starting point to sit down with your partner and say, okay, what do I need for Christmas to be a success for me? And have maybe one or two pointers and each agree how that need can be met for the other. Um, also, like, if you know that there's, you know, in the past that there's been conflict with, with. um you know, or just even stress or strain. Mm. Um, you know, visiting relatives and that. Do it differently this Christmas. You know, alcohol is involved, so maybe rather than visiting everyone in the evening, visit people in the morning when there's when there's less alcohol consumed. Mm. Rather than visiting everyone at once, maybe spread it out over a couple of days, and mm-hmm. um, maybe arrange to actually have you know to meet family members. Uh, outdoors and say, look, let's meet and go for a walk by the coast. Let's meet and go, I have a walk in the woods. Again, alcohol isn't involved. Yeah. But if you have those strategies and you have that conversation with your partner well in advance of Christmas, you know, you're, you're halfway there in terms of guaranteeing that this would be a different Christmas to the one before.
5: OK,
4: all right. And your own group, Family Therapist Association Ireland, do you have a, a website
9: for...
8: Yes, absolutely. The FTAI, Family Therapy Association of Ireland, um, it's a, that's the regu- regulatory body for family therapists. And if you just go on the website, you can find a family therapist in your area. Mm-hmm.
4: So the one tip now from the FTAI would be sit down now
8: and yes. make a plan. Absolutely. And have the conversation and deconstruct what the word or what the words perfect Christmas mean for you, because I guarantee you, you know, the it'll be different for each member of the couple, and And figure figure that out, and what you need for it to be a success for you.
4: The safe word idea I read in a newspaper article recently, Mm -hmm. and you like that, the one, are we all right for butter there, love?
8: Yeah, I think that's a wonderful idea, Uh, and to be honest, I use that myself in my own relationship. (laughs) Um, I think absolutely, go for it. All right.
4: Okay. Catherine, listen, good speaking with you. Uh, Catherine White, uh, Family Therapist Association of Ireland. Make the plan now. We all know what I'm talking about. We all know the cousin, the auntie, the uncle, the granny, the granddad, who can get a bit leery after a few sherbets and might just start a conversation you don't want to have make a plan that man as they say Eighteen fifty-seven we'll come back to where we started with uh, COVID-19 we started talking to Anthony Staines this morning and then we were talking about the schools talking to Seamus O'Connor down at Skull of Ouija, and he was particularly concerned about the fact that if there's a case in his school now unless the parent decides to notify him he won't know and clearly that's not good enough in his view Um Great discussion, says Timmy. Can you please let parents know it's not just schools where contact tracing isn't done. It's all activities outside school now that the HSE don't contact parents. Thanks for highlighting this. PJ, my son was in two pubs in Middleton over the weekend. There was nobody checking COVID certs or ID, not even taking names or numbers. My brother was in Galway and had to show his cert and his ID to get in anywhere. Tom says, yes, schools, but the whole media is ignoring the elephant in the room. Bars. If you look in the window of a bar, you'll see contact you'd never see in a school. And I dread to think what's going on in the nightclubs. I'd be all in favour also of no jab, no job. For healthcare workers, you can't be catching a life-threatening illness, getting help for another problem. That's not on, says Tom. Hi, PJ, you missed out on another part there. Little Johnny and Mary brings COVID home. And then no one goes to work if the whole family is, is down. Just wanted to, Fiona, do you have the, the headset handy there? Just, we were chatting with this this morning in, in the office about it. Like, particularly people with young kids going to school and parents, you know, holding down jobs. If you have to keep a child home, it's, it's, it's all sorts of hassle. Mm-hmm. I mean, your own what age are you or two again?
0: I have a 7 year old and I have a 4 year old so I was saying to you this morning if the 7 year old was close contact in his class and then we were required to stay at home for 4 or 5 days, that's a week out and then if you have a week or 2 down the line and the 4 year old is a close contact in her school or in her class then you've got this, a similar situation again now so it is just I mean I know I've spoken to so many parents over the last couple of weeks and there's um, a real conflict of what is the best policy to do because you know people who are working and who can't work from home mm. who don't have that, you know, um avenue open to them, they're in a situation where if they are a close contact, how much time are they going to have to take at mm-hmm. home? Um, but at the same time, then they're very worried about uh, COVID-19 spreading in the classroom and not knowing about it. So it's um, it's a difficult one to call, I think.
4: Something to be conscious of as well. And you and I and our colleagues here, we're, we're well looked after by our mm. employers in terms of being off for sick pay and anything to do with COVID. Fair play. But... We come from a place of privilege in that regard. There are so many people listening to us this morning that if they have to stay home with a sick child, they don't get paid.
0: But that's it. And look at the healthcare system. Um, there's like, what is it, 3,500 people who are out of work at the minute? How many of them are parents who've had to stay at home because of uh, a close contact? You know, so um, and it's not like they, they can work from home either. So it is. It's, um, it's a tough one.
4: OK, all right, Pete, thanks. And if anyone has any thoughts on that, 1850 715 or drop us a WhatsApp voice note to 83 396 96, 96. I'm not sure... Oh, God, and this is the surgery... Well, one of the surgeries my family goes to, so Jackie was on. She said, good morning, PJ. Could anyone tell me if there's a problem with Silverdale surgery in Black Rock Hall with their phone lines? I've been trying since nine to ring... But getting a disconnected or engaged tone, I really need a doctor this morning. So if anyone knows anything, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Can anybody help if they if we're on? I, I know that we're on from time to time down in Blackrock Hall in various places down there. I know that we're on in the, in the dental surgery sometimes and we're on in the doctor's waiting rooms from time to time. If anyone can help down there, do let us know at eighteen fifty seven one five. Nine nine six. Hi, PJ. Time the government got rid of NIAC. It's all about the talk. Why? There are thousands out of work on the front line. It's the system not fit for purpose any longer. There's a major outbreak in Kerry. It's red on the COVID map. And people are coming to hotels there. Could they just isolate the red counties before a lockdown will happen? Russia is lockdown. I don't know what that means. And then, oh yeah, top of lockdown. Um, a place, I didn't realise there was a place in the world that hadn't had a single COVID case is had Tonga, believe it or not, of all places, has just gone into its first ever lockdown. The island of Tonga, they've gone into a seven-day lockdown. Everything shut for seven days. They've had one case. It's their first. I couldn't believe that. It. It's their first ever case of COVID. And they've gone into lockdown like that. Can we just talk? Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With
1: McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. Cmig.ie. dot I-E.
4: context of that um, message I wasn't getting at the end. Of course, there is a lockdown in Russia now. And there's a lockdown in Latvia. And I mentioned to you Tonga. That's quite an extraordinary story. It's their first ever case. They are saying that somebody flew in from New Zealand, someone double vaccinated, but with a breakthrough infection, totally asymptomatic. Nothing at all wrong with them, but clearly I failed a test or something. I got a positive test. So the whole, for one case, their first ever case person is. Even-
10: ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
4: Sick. They've just gone slap, bang, dunk into a seven day lockdown. And I have been saying from the start and continue to say that's how you do it. How's ever? Thanks for that clarification. Eighteen fifty-seven one five nine nine six six. As I said, 55 days to Christmas. Seven weeks, Friday, is Christmas Eve. And every year, thousands of you here in Cork get together to help fight homelessness with Cork. Simon by wearing your Christmas jumper to raise vital funds. And this year, Cork's 96 of M, along with Cork Simon, is asking you to host your Christmas jumper day wherever you feel safest doing that. Do it at home. Do it in the office. Do it online with your friends and colleagues. Have it over a Zoom or whatever you want to do. Or even join up with your family overseas and get them to get their Christmas jumper. And do it all on Zoom and take pictures and have fun with it. You can get a fundraising pack today at CorkSimon.ie and join Cork's 96FM to help fight homelessness here in Cork.
2: Can we just talk?
4: The opinion line on
2: Cork's 96 FM. With
1: McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life, and health insurance. CMIG.ie.
2: Access all areas on Cork's 96 FM. Your
1: guide to nightlife on Leaside.
2: Hi, it's Michael with an update on Cork's entertainment. Riverdance returns to Cork live at the Marquee, taking
11: place from the 2nd to 5th of June next summer. It's the new 25th anniversary show, and tickets are on sale now from usual outlets. Up Access All Areas. The Right Here Right Now Festival returns on November 12th to 14th with a brilliant double bill in store on the Saturday evening when John Spillane and Junior Rudder play Cork Opera House alongside the Cork Opera House Concert Orchestra. Further details on the festival are available from CorkOperHouse.ie Access All Areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a show, play, exhibition or a live stream coming up by emailing us at AAA at 96FM.ie Access All Areas.
1: Your Tonight life on side on Corks ninety six FM.
4: We talk a lot about anxiety and people exhibiting signs of anxiety. How do you tell whether you have anxiety or you're just a bit worried? Because sometimes the two can get confused. Anna Lee Han can help there. Anna, good morning to you.
12: Morning, PJ. How are you?
4: Good. We all have worries. Good. We all have concerns. We all have things that kind of strike us when we get out of bed in the morning and say, I better sort that out or what's going to happen. Yeah. How do you know when you've got anxiety and it ain't just a regular worry?
12: That's it. And do you know what, PJ? Each and every single one of us has anxiety. Like, anxiety is a very normal thing. It's when anxiety is kind of, like, if you think of it like a spectrum, say, for instance, a low-end, normal amount of anxiety would be normal worries, you know, you might be worried about, oh, I need to pay that bill or I might need to go speak on the radio. So I might be a little bit nervous about that, you know, or anxious about that. Small things like that are very, very normal. And then if you think of the other end of the spectrum, you know, when you think of generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder, again, they're the extreme cases. Mm. But what's kind of in the middle, I suppose, of that spectrum would be hidden anxiety, really. Um, Anxiety where that's driving your behavior. So the need for control, the need to succeed, you know, being re- being on edge, the need to, I suppose, have it all together all of the time. And if you don't have it all together, then that's the worst thing in the world. That mm. would be a sign that you, you do have anxiety, you know, or if you have even physical symptoms, right. you know, like you're constantly, you constantly need to be moving or you have to be over prepared for something because if you don't, then you know you're really really worried that something will go wrong you know you're kind of preparing for all inevitable situations those mm. kind of things are i suppose mm. telltale tales, tell signs rather
4: we all have of anxiety. we all know someone in our lives who who likes to be prepared and have yeah. a consist a contingency for every contingency which mm. is fine today sort of when the day is but some we all know someone too who's doing that for something that isn't even happening yet
12: yeah, that's it exactly. And it's it can actually call, it drive you mad fear. if you
4: let it get get on top of you.
12: Yeah, 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 hundred percent. Like if you're if your anxiety is driving your behaviours, you know what I mean. If you have to do everything perfectly, if you have if you can't say no to people, if you have to please everybody, you know that's anxiety. when it's a problem. Yeah, you know you can't do everything right all of the time. <laughs> it's just not possible. But again. That kind of height, the need for order and control, the need to succeed, yeah. to prepare—that's when it's a problem, and that's when you know you need to, you know, address it. I suppose. And uh, that you know it, that over.
4: Yeah, you can you can overthink Sorry. things. I think we're all guilty at times of of overthinking, but when it yeah. becomes chronic overthinking—that you actually are lying awake at night thinking of something that mm. is a month away—you need help.
12: Yeah. Oh, 100%, that racing mind and that overthinking, like it's not helping you. And I mean, you, you can't solve a problem that's six months down the line in your head in, at bed, in bed at night. It's, <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Um, so yeah, no, 100%, that's, um, mm. that's a telltale sign for sure. That kind of feeling on edge as well, though. And like, like I said, the restlessness, you know, that's your body trying to regulate. Like if you constantly need to tap your foot or you're constantly moving or you constantly need to be busy, Mm. That's a telltale sign. You know what I mean? Listen to your body. Like if you have physical symptoms, like a tightness in your chest or that kind of low hum of anxiety, again, that's a sign to do something about it. You So what
4: can we do? Actually
12: listen to yourself. So it's very hard to give kind of general advice across the board for anxiety because it's different for everybody. And like what might work for me, PJ, might be terrible for you. So say if you're a really high achiever and I say to you, off you go now, PJ, and go for three runs a week. And then you're like, no, no, she said to go for three runs a week now. So I'm going to go for three runs a week. I'm actually going to go for five runs a week. And then all of a sudden you are, <laughs> you're that high achiever again. And that's putting you under more pressure. Mm. But there are things you can do. Like I would say the number one thing would be to limit your caffeine. If you're having three cups of coffee a day, maybe try have two. Again, mm. don't try and do everything all at once. Like don't say, oh, she said to have no coffee now. So <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to cut out all coffee because you're setting yourself up to fail. So try reduce your caffeine. Try maybe reduce alcohol. Try and introduce a little bit of movement, looking at your sleep. You know, what are your habits? Are you bringing your phone into into the bed and you're lying on social media for an hour before you go to sleep? Because that's not going to help you. Can you leave your phone outside the bedroom and mm. an act physical alarm? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I'd be slow to give general advice across the board, but small things like that. But again, small changes have big impact. So like start mm-hmm. small, don't try to do all of these things at once because you're setting yourself up. For yeah. failure, and then you're oh, to But you see,
4: if if you're the kind of person that that gets hit up over every little detail, when you set out to start yeah. small, you automatically overdo that anyway.
12: Exactly. Yeah. 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 So don't like pair it back. Be flexible. But that's why I I I emphasise the point of like one thing isn't there for everybody. What well, to actually say hmm. if you think you have anxiety speak to a professional because what's important to do is to get beneath the behaviors, like what's driving that anxiety. Yeah. Because you could make all these small changes and it might alleviate some of the symptoms, but ultimately that anxiety is still going to be there and it's yeah. probably going to manifest in some other way. Yeah, it's a to a professional
4: a bit like taking taking tablets for, for the sore back. Unless you find out what's causing the sore back.
12: Exactly. There yeah. 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 Get to the get to the root cause because that anxiety is driving the behaviours. Yes, going for a run might help you feel a little bit less stressed, and it might make you feel—you know—it might get rid of some of that excess energy. But ultimately, that underneath or that underlying anxiety is still going to be there, you know. So unless you go speak to a professional counselor, psychotherapist, whatever it may be, you know, it's going to show up in some way, other shape, or form. And I think sure. it's important to get the bottom of it.
4: And can people contact you? Have you got a website or a social media they can contact you for advice?
12: Yeah, of course they do. Yeah, so it's Anna Hand Coach, and then Anna Hand Coaching on social media as well.
4: All right, good, good to talk to you on the opinion line. Anna Hand Coaching on social media. Uh, just you know, don't don't sweat the small stuff is a thing. If you find yourself really sweating the small stuff, you've got a problem. I spent most of the last couple of days glued when I had an opportunity to a new book. A new book called A State of Emergency, written by Virgin Media reporter Richard Chambers. And it's described as the incendiary, untold story of Ireland's response to the biggest public health emergency of the past century. An electrifying behind the scenes account, which you think might be sales talk, but it's not. This is a serious, deep dive into what's been going on politically and in the health. And the hospitals and in ordinary people's lives over the last year and a half. A serious deep dive that reads like a novel. And Richard, I have to welcome you on the programme by telling you that even though I have, just like you, covered this blasted thing since day one, I learned something on every second page. Congratulations on a fine book. Good morning.
11: Oh, thank you so much, PJ. It means a lot coming from you. You've done you've done great stuff yourself all the way through it. You've been great with the messaging. So no, that that's that's really lovely. Thanks so much for that. It's it's,
4: it's remarkable. It's a real deep dive into the interaction of the various parts of our society. What prompted you to read it and what pro- or to write it rather and to bring it out at this time when we're still in a bit dodgy?
11: Yeah, I think that's an inc- that's a good question. I mean, I think it was important to do it and write it uh, while we were in the midst of it. I think there's always a danger when you're doing things like this, that if you write them uh, after the fact, as it were, that people tend to sanitise their accounts of it. So you might say that there might be one minister might say that, oh, that other minister wasn't so bad, or our relationship with the HSE or with Neffet was pretty smooth, you know. So um, it was better to get them while their relationships that they're in and that, that are so you know central to the story are real, and contemporary. So, I mean, it all started just back in January. I, I was approached by, by the publisher, HarperCollins, to uh, think about writing a book. And um, just from that point, it was about really trying to, to see what sort of stories we wanted to link together, what sort of, you know, what sort of angles we were going to look at. But I mean, just as you're saying, I think some of the stuff that is sort of uncovered over the course of the book in terms of those relationships and how people, you know, with their hands on the levers of how this was all managed at a state level, how they got on and how some of their relationships crumbled over the course of it is stuff which I simply didn't know. And I think it's very interesting. Mm. And I think it is worth reflecting on as we are heading into another difficult period.
4: You don't spare anybody's blushes?
11: No, I don't. I think that there is – I was quite shocked at some of the – I suppose some of the the, the depth of feeling there, which is, I mean, for example – there is some very, very heavy criticism of the health minister Stephen Donnelly from senior figures both in Neffet and in the HSE. Some criticism as well uh, within government about uh, the minister, uh, who is described by uh, one senior HSE figure as being some sort of, um, some sort of you know avatar of a David Brent, or an- by another person then as a as a Ron Burgundy. So the fact that these are the feelings of the people who are managing a response to the crisis and describing the health minister responsible for them uh, is quite shocking. But, you know, there is there are so many different interesting personalities mm. uh, in this who have been so key to this. Uh, and I think that, yeah, they're, they're, there's no holding back, really, in terms of how they're viewed by each other. It's probably it was actually reflected to me by one member of Nefet who who has read the book now at this point, and uh, he was like, I'm really glad somebody did this because um if we'd if we'd come out of this we'd probably have said we all got on and everything was grand and sure nobody would believe that. So, Has anybody come um, and said think-
4: you're awful little so and so?
11: No, I I that, that, that would be telling, but no, there there actually hasn't at this point anyway. Yeah. No. Because I mean it is this is this is how this is how it is and I think that people People understand that the need for something like this to sort of, you know, because people do need to understand how this was managed. Like we are approaching a time when people are going to look for an inquiry or an investigation into the management of this. And I think that something like this where you're allowing the people, the, the, the key actors, if you want to put it that way, to speak frankly about their roles and how it was all managed, I think there is a value in that
4: mm. you, you focus in a good chunk of the book on the nursing homes and a particular nursing home in Dublin and the story of a particular woman, Rosie, which was heartbreaking because she was a very with it woman who stayed with the news, she was almost ahead of the news and she took all her own precautions and yet she still got it and yet she still died and her family are going to have questions and so will many, many more
11: yeah, there are there are so many families like that that of Rosie Hegarty. and I mean, I suppose when you when you're writing a book like this, they're the people you worry about. You know, you worry about whether or not you've done their story justice. You worry about, I mean, how they're going to feel when the, when the book is out. But this is such a you know this is a a situation, a terrible tragedy which is inflicted on. Countless families really yeah. across the country, both in nursing homes and, and elsewhere, in homes and in hospitals. But the situation, I mean, if, you, if you, you're you referring there to, to St. Mary's Nursing Home in the Phoenix Park here in Dublin, uh, which just witnessed an extraordinarily dreadful loss of life. To be able to go in there, I suppose, and speak to the families of those who died, or the families of, of, of other residents there, as well as some of the staff members, mm-hmm. speaking some of them for the first time about it, uh, just to try and bring home. Because one, one of the key members of staff there... I was driving home one day from just a horrendous time. Just the the, the the work that the people in the nursing homes had to do at the peak of this in the first wave was just extraordinarily difficult. And she was driving home down the N7 uh, away from Dublin uh, and just was pulled over to checkpoint with tears streaming down her faces. The guard sort of looks in the window and sort of says, are you OK? And she just can't, can't respond to her. So I think yeah. it was important. I really wanted to make sure that the staff of the nursing homes yeah. um, also had their voices heard in it as well, because it was just... a uh, a dreadful experience. You got
4: extraordinary two. access, Richard. I saying, every as I turned every page, you got extraordinary access to people.
11: Yeah, I think I mean for it, it, it. That is something I'm I'm very grateful for. I was shocked at the honesty that was there as well uh, from it. I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds of hours of interviews, sort of put into it. I I, I was lucky in a way, I suppose, uh, because I was sort of covering. The, the pandemic so far across a few, a few different stools. There's the political side of it, where you have strong contacts. There's the NEF and the HSE side again, strong contacts. And then I was lucky enough as well to, to always have a strong focus then on the personal details. You know, the families who are affected, people who are still going through COVID, people with long COVID, people who have been in ICU, the frontline healthcare workers as well. And Dr. I think Dr. That, Ali's family, for example. Oh my words! Yes, I think Doctor. So I think a lot of your listeners might remember the story of Doctor Syed Wakar Ali, who was um he was a local emergency doctor who was working in the matter. Uh, he himself was admitted with COVID to the ICU in the hospital, and he was one of the first healthcare workers who died. And it was such an uh, uh, it's such a difficult story to tell. He was such a beloved figure in mm-hmm. in all of the hospitals that he worked in. All of his colleagues, patients, of course, left like memories of what he was like and how how seen they felt by him as a doctor, how human he was, but also his family. His family are extraordinarily strong. I speak particularly in the book um, with his daughter, Summer, uh, mm-hmm. who, of course, graduated and is now a doctor herself. And so she is now working uh, in the matter, uh, effectively above one floor above the ICU where her father died. And I think that her resilience, her strength, her passion for the, for, for the job and sort of learning the lessons that her father taught her in, in mm. sort of paving this path to medicine. I just I think there's a real lesson in there for people as well about, you know, the impacts of grief, but also, you know, taking what we've learned from the people who've gone before us. So I mean I'm I, to have spent time talking to people like like Summer Ali and and, and and the families of those who died has just been it's it's been an enormous responsibility, but mm-hmm. a huge privilege as well to try and bring their story and, and, and do it justice. Was it's emotionally difficult at time, Richard. Absolutely. Absolutely, it really was. I mean, there's no sugarcoating it as well. I think, yeah. you know, you often hear about some journalists and um, they'd be like, "Oh, you have to cut yourself off from it. You have to sort of detach yourself from these things." I just don't. I don't. I, I've not. I've never been able to do that with COVID, really, because just because of, you know, from from the very get go, if you go back to last February, last March, people were always on, whether they would be healthcare workers and they were frightened of the situation, or people who had been cocooning, like my own family was. You know, there's an enormous sense of, you know, responsibility to, to, to sort of, you know, just be sharing this human experience with people. And you would, you'd go, you'd, you'd often spend time when you're, when you're sort of clocked out at the end of 15, 16 hour days or whatever. And you'd worry about the people who'd, who'd spent the time messaging you for the day or the people you talk to for the interviews for the book. I think you don't, it's only human. I think it is, it's important that, you, you know, as a journalist, you don't lose that sense of humanity either you know I think that's important it's it's, it's kind of always something I've, I've I've tried to do anyway come back to the fact that you spare nobody's blushes and
4: one thing that comes through the book is the warts and all relationships between people people who we would think were and we know work next door to each other almost but don't necessarily get on very well you know you, no, don't, you don't spare not. that either <laughs>
11: No, and I think there, there probably will be some people in high places who who, who aren't who aren't thankful for the book um, coming out as it Paul Reid and Tony Holohan, for example. I think so. I think that that was interesting. Some people might have realised that there was, you know, there was there, there was it wasn't always a smooth relationship. Going back to last March, when they had that 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 very public falling out over the testing target at the time. But over the course of the pandemic, there really was an element of distrust between the leadership of Neffet, which is, of course, Tony Houlihan and key figures like that, and Paul Reid. There was a feeling when you came to last October, October of last year, when, of course, Tony Houlihan returned and he made that recommendation of a level five uh, lockdown, there was a sense of betrayal from some senior figures in Neffet. Uh, that Paul Reid had sort of told the government, no, no, we don't need to do this, we're coping, our hospitals are coping. And it was the same again in the run-up to Christmas. Now, Paul Reid would say, of course, he was playing it out of a straight bat. He was getting everything in from the hospital managers and they weren't under any severe pressure at the time. But the net view would be, why is the head of the health service saying that things are OK, everything's grand, when it's about what happens two, three, four weeks down the line? So there is a very testy relationship there, Some people in Neffet, I think people will be surprised to hear that, didn't really see the HSE leadership at times Mm. as allies in the fight against COVID. Also, some people in Neffet as well, actually, what is a very charged sort of commentary, they felt that the HSE from from the very beginning misunderstood COVID, that there was a focus on things like we need to get morgues in place, we need people in military uniforms about the place, whereas some people... In Nefit, particularly in the public health element of it, would think that no, 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 your focus should be on testing. It should be on sort of giving support to your regional public health departments. Let them make decisions based on what they're hearing on the ground. Mm. So there is been a, there has been a clash, and it's been an ongoing conflict. Yeah, uh, really, to it goes, it goes on all the time. It's
4: a very very <laughs> continuous. Lastly, Richard, he he's the man who's been to the forefront of it all from day one. Have you developed your own insight? As to Tony Houlihan, who he is, what drives him, what keeps him going?
11: I think, yeah, like as you say, I think that Tony Houlihan is a totemic figure in how everybody in Ireland has experienced this pandemic. He has his detractors. There are people who say that he can be quite authoritarian. That he would host meetings, and he—if he, he wouldn't suffer fools. PJ is the way it's sort of described, you know. Mm. That if he thinks that you're not contributing something to a meeting, or you don't—he doesn't like what you said. He won't be shy in letting you know it. There has been like talk of tempers lost in the Department of Health and whatnot, but there is a resilience there, which I think everybody, even his sharpest detractors, would point to. That from the very beginning, uh, notwithstanding the huge personal uh, anguish, which of course his family has has undergone over the course of this course he, he did lose his wife which is i can't imagine going through that in the middle of all of this um he has shown remarkable resilience he is very dogged he has no fear of standing up to people he has no fear of of doing what he feels is the right thing i think it was best summed up to me by by one figure who was actually um who had been quite critical of Tony Hooligan at times said that there was times at the start of it in particular where they'd go to those press briefings, you know, in front of the table at the Department of Health and they'd feel, we are really screwed here, that we are facing an Italy situation or a New York situation or even a UK situation and we are screwed. And they always felt he never showed fear, Tony Hoolihan, and they got something from that. Mm-hmm. That even when, you know, we're at a situation where HSE figures were waiting on the tarmac at Dublin Airport, drafting up, orders to half the amount of PPE into hospitals because we simply didn't have any. That there was an enormous amount of courage which is showed by him. That he was almost this sort of Churchillian figure that he might have been Difficult on a personal level, that he might have been uh, quite um quite a strong figure, quite authoritarian, as I say, but that he was the kind of person we needed to pull us through it. So there is going to be a huge focus on Tony Houlihan in this, uh, but I think that there is a fairly full picture of the sort of character that he is throughout.
4: It's a super read, Richard, and I congratulate you on it. A state of emergency, Richard Chambers, Virgin Media uh, News Correspondent. Super book, well worth a read. Eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six, Richard. Thanks.
1: Thank
2: you. can we just talk
4: the opinion line on corks
2: 96 fm with
1: mccarthy insurance group call in person or call them now they don't <laughs> just talk the talk they walk the walk cmig.ie
4: 185715996 the number the text of WhatsApp is 96 and the email is opinion at 96fm.ie quick reminder to you and I'll be telling you this now a bit during the month of November uh, last year we introduced it and we'll be doing it again this year and that's between Christmas and New Year we'll be doing Rewind 21 which is a look back at the year on the opinion line we have to Pick bits of the year, we do so much stuff on the program. We have to sit down and sift through all the things we've done and try to make five programs for between Christmas and New Year. And we're in the kind of selection process at the moment for that. And I'd like your input. So if you pop me an email or contact us to any one of our platforms, opinion at 96fm.ie, was there an interview? Was there a moment? Was there a guest? Was there something utterly daft that happened or a story that broke? It doesn't have to be a big news story. Something that we'd forgotten, but you might really have enjoyed. Or indeed, if you want to look at a way we focused on a big story, just get in touch with us over the next couple of weeks. i would put a little deadline on this. I'd kind of like to know your stuff by about the 20th of November. So we'll give it three weeks. Today's the first. So we say today, three weeks. Uh, Just let us know the stuff that you enjoyed on the Opinion Line during 2021. The stuff that you remember or that you'd like to hear again. Let us know and we'll put it into those programmes over the Christmas period. 1850 Opinion at 96ofm.ie for any of those memories. New programme starting tonight I think, on RTE1 The Irish Wedding. Yes, there have been a hundred programmes done, a hundred documentaries about weddings but another one should have been lost on nobody and one of the couples involved uh, is Sinead and Esther and they live in Cork and I think They're both there. Hi, Sinead.
13: How's it going?
4: How are you? And Esther?
9: Yeah, how's it going?
4: How are you? Now, Sinead, you... And you started... You gave Esther a place to stay. Tell me that story.
13: Um, Yeah, so we originally met... um, Esther was going out with one of my friends at the time. And uh, they broke up. And then a year later... Um, we were just chatting and she said that, oh, I'm, I'm looking for a place to crash up, up in Cork. And I goes, I shall stay with me. And then three three weeks later, she moved in and I haven't been able to get rid of her since.
4: <laughs> That's not a Cork accent.
13: Um, well, we're both from West Cork. Uh, my parents are English. so I picked up the accent from them.
4: I got you. I got you. So from moving in for a place to crash... Um, Esther uh, how long did it take before there was more to it than that
9: uh, I'd say there was more to it probably that first night <laughs> I was there but um, yeah it was it was it went quickly I don't know we were a stereotypical gay couple and moved in together after a couple of weeks and mm. I'd say I probably just I, I think I just knew that there was, there was something different with this one
13: I think it was Eva going to make or break us. And yeah, we got,
9: us. we got thrown into the deep end very quickly. Yeah. Um, I ended up in hospital and Sinead's brother passed away. So we had a lot of, of oh. big things happen at the very beginning, but they, I think, they kind of brought us closer together.
4: Yeah. Sorry to hear and about that, Sinead. Yeah. So you decided to get married even in the midst of all the restrictions.
9: Yeah, we we originally planned it for June 13th and we kept postponing and picking different days. And in the end of it, we were like, you know, we just want to get married. Mm. And so we went ahead with the 25 people and um, it was lovely. Like it wouldn't have been what we had chosen, but the way we had it, it was amazing. It was so intimate because it was so small Mm-hmm. And I loved it. I wouldn't have changed it now. Um, but we are still planning the big party for next month. Now on our year anniversary, we're going to have the big party with everyone. Cool,
4: cool. Where did you actually have the ceremony?
9: Um, it was in St. Peter's on North Main Street.
4: I, right, yeah. I There's a photo here that the uh, t- producers have put up as a, as a publicity shot. And I'm saying, where's that? Where's that? <laughs>
9: Yeah, we we had the ceremony there, and then we went up to the old jail for some photos
4: after. Nice, nice. So, uh, the, and the party coming up for the for the anniversary. So then, when, when you how did it come that you end up on a television program? How did that start?
13: Um. Yeah, I think. Uh, like I do a lot of filmmaking, and actually film weddings uh, now and again. That with my with my regular job and um somebody actually tagged me in it on facebook and said oh you know you're looking for somebody professional to do it and you know you won't really get more professional than uh than rte so i said all right grand i'll send him an email and then that was that and um and yeah and then he came along the big day and yeah and, and captured it really well and then we actually got all the footage so i edited our own video together as well, just to have like, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, yeah, it was pretty, pr- pretty good.
9: Yeah.
13: yeah. Right.
9: I kept having to undo my pants to put the mic on though. That was, uh, <laughs> <What> <laughs> was you
4: just, so I missed that bit. My what, what happened to your pants?
9: <laughs> <laughs> I kept having to undo my pants to put the mic in properly. And I was like, you know, it is my wedding day, but I didn't know I'd be opening my pants so much <laughs> in front of everyone. <laughs>
10: Oh for um, goodness Alex,
9: Alex was brilliant. The the man filming, he was he was so nice, and mm. oh man, he just it was like he was part of the big day. I'm like, we invited him to our next party just to come and, and have know. the crack because he was he was a brilliant. Mm.
4: Well, you sound you sound like you've you've both chosen very well, uh, and uh, congratulations to you, and we look forward to watching it as part of The Irish Wedding, new series on RTE1, uh, tonight at half nine. Sinead Huggins and Esther Young, congratulations again, and thanks for being with us on the opinion line. 18.50, 715, 996. Sure, yeah, crash for a while. And what do you know? Married in lockdown.
2: Can we just talk?
4: opinion line on
2: corks 96 fm with
1: mccarthy insurance group call them now for motor home business farm life and health insurance cmig.ie
6: you can do it on your phone
1: wow okay easy
6: you can do it with your housemate Hmm. this is actually fun you can even do it in bed
2: well that didn't take long
3: do the Monster Music Survey at 96fm.ie And you could win cash. cash Listen to the
6: tunes, tell us what you think And be in to win 1,000 euro
3: One thousand euro.
4: The Monster Music Survey Do it now
6: at 96fm.ie
4: and Succession is back I'm Starring our favourite savagely wealthy family, the Roys You have to wonder, is there anybody you could actually like For more than 10 seconds. (laughs) I think they're horrible people, every last one of them. But tune in to Carson 96M all this week as we celebrate the release of Series 3 with NOW. And you could win a holiday to New York worth €10,000. Flights, transfer by limo, five-star hotel, a helicopter ride over New York, and spending money. Would you like that? Of course you would. Right, here's the question. Who plays Logan Roy? In succession, you answer A, Brian Cox, or B, Courtney Cox. A, Brian Cox, or B, Courtney Cox. And how you enter? You text HOLIDAY, the word HOLIDAY, and you answer A or B, along with your name to 57080. 57080. A text costs 2 euro, and you must be over 18 to enter. Get your bill pairs Permission, one text, required per entry. And the winner will be announced on the 9th of November. For teas and teas, check out the competition page at 96fm.ie. And it's only on Cork's 96FM. Succession, back for Series 3. I don't know how you're supposed to like any of them, but it's a good show. eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. 715 you Remember the Ballinadee bus? This... Uh, siblings uh, Thomas and Anna and Rachel and Niall got together to get an old bus and turn it into an Airbnb and was kind of how they helped themselves to cope with the sudden loss of their dad. Now not only did they get the the Airbnb out of the bus, it's gorgeous actually, it's a fabulous joke. but they've also raised over 32 grand for Pieta House in the process and now they want to take it a step further, Thomas. Good morning to you. Hi, how are you going on? Good, good. The bus was a fabulous job. I remember seeing a lot of um, footage on it, and you made a great job of it. So, so what's the next step for Balunadie then?
14: Um, I suppose we have we have to buy a second one, um, and we got it towed down from Newry in County Down, but it's fully converted already. So we're putting that one in place, right. um, and we're also opening up a, like a coffee truck in the yard, so like an kind of outdoor cafe kind of thing. It's yes. hopefully gonna be done in the next two weeks as well.
4: Right, but your bigger plans again?
14: Um, more plans, yeah. Glamping pods, other stuff, uh, kind of expanding with the whole farm. Hopefully down the line we'll do like open farm kind of thing. Um, but yeah, we're very impulsive and we're just all mad for roads, so there's loads of stuff planned.
4: This was kind of something that started as a project to help you work through the sudden loss of Dad, but it's it's developed into far more than that, hasn't it?
14: Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think. Like when we first bought the bus, we didn't realise that um <clears throat> it was going to help us massively. But what happened with that? It was kind of a distraction, and you know we were all like working together outside, um so it really helped a lot. But now it's just grown into, like it's something that we love, and we hope to hopefully work for ourselves for going forward in the future and just take a wage next year and kind of drive on with it and see where it takes us.
4: Cause to me, the a whole business is, I mean, the first one, crack, yeah, the first bus ha- bus has a
14: bar and a hot tub, like, yeah, yeah. I'm still trying to. Be, how'd you get out a hot
4: tub into the
5: blippin' boss?
14: Like? <laughs> uh, it, it's outside the front, yeah, but um, we're we're currently trying to roof that now and get a nice outside area ready for the winter, so yeah. that there'll be like more bookings and stuff. So like we're we doing that as well.
4: I mean, is there much take That's up fun. of it on Airbnb?
14: There is, yeah. We had a 98% occupancy rate from first of June to the end of September. So to. fully, nearly, almost fully booked, which is great. But um, winter isn't as busy yet. But like we're doing a few bits to hopefully. Um, get more bookings and yeah stuff like how would you heat it work. in
4: the winter I mean you can hardly heat anyone. you know buses
14: aren't the warmest things anyway in the winter no it's fairly well insulated though and it has, it has rads like these kind of special rads so we fit those in recently enough as well just to get it warm
4: <laughs> you're joking <laughs>
14: me you got rads into no. it <laughs> yeah and there's like a, a like like an like a, like a electric uh, stove kind of thing as well so it is really cool. it's toasty in the winter
4: that's it and the, yeah the second one then what stage that they say that's fully refurbished as
14: well yeah, fully converted. It sleeps like seven. Um, it's a bit different to the one that we did ourselves. So, um, we're kind of we're going to have to do a few small painting jobs and kind of add our own touch to it. But then we'll be putting that one into place hopefully by like April of next year. Right. And would you you, you want to do more buses? I think do you? Um, geez, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> two would be enough. Mm. I, Although I, I say that now, but I'll probably get another one. <laughs> yeah. Which one of you is talking about a plane? I mean, oh my, I would. Yeah, I would love a plane, but she's the first um, expensive and they're hard to get. <laughs>
4: <laughs> they are that there was a fella I actually I think there was a there was a documentary made uh, a year or two ago about a funeral director believe it or not and one of his clients had converted a plane up in the up in the oh, west right. of Ireland so they're out there I suppose is it, like,
14: that Sligo. yeah
4: yeah 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 yeah
14: yeah. Yeah, I think I know the one you're all about yeah it looks unreal <laughs> I mean you could hot tubs
4: and jacuzzis and all you're turning <laughs> Ballinadee into a tourist hub and fair play
14: to you Hopefully, yeah, we'll put it on the map anyway.
4: And if I, wanted to, if I wanted to find it on Airbnb, where would I find it? Yeah,
14: just type in BalladieBus um, or like on our Instagram. Um, we have everything linked and we have our own website and stuff up at the moment. So we can, you can find everything up there.
4: Okay, all right. And so congratulations on, on the fundraising. Is that still going on?
14: Thank you. Um, no, well, like that was kind of din- what happened after Dad died, in- yeah. initially. But um, going forward, we do kind of we give nights, so we raffle off nights and s- stay in the bus, and we support like small, smaller local charities, like Can Say Youth Support Service and other charities like that. But that's something we'll, we're going to do always going forward. Now, I think.
4: All right. So listen, it's it's great to see uh, something developing like this. Uh, Thomas McCarty, thank you very much. the uh, Bus, you'll find it on, on Airbnb. Uh, there, there was. Uh, they did feature in a television show. <laughs> super job. Absolutely super job. Thank you, guys. 1850 715 Did they find out what was going on at the, um, at the surgery in Silverdale? Did we find out whether or not they actually had uh, a problem with the phones down there? Because I know Jackie was looking to find out that earlier on. Did we get any update there? Just On a couple of things. I just can't understand Tony Hullihan's public health advice. I get it, the risk to kids is minimal, but this is public health we're talking about, the larger picture. The children will pass on the bug to parents or even grandparents who feel obliged to look after the kids for working parents. It just beggars belief that a man in his position would give that advice, those assurances. And cancel contact tracing. Well, the contact tracing, the cancelling of contact tracing is a real problem for the schools. As Seamus O'Connor was telling me, the principal of Skullvrida was telling me earlier this morning, down across Avon, like if a child tests positive now, unless the parents let him know, nobody will. So where's he supposed to go with that? And he said, that doesn't make sense because a, a child goes home. And unless they know why they've gone home, sure, COVID could be flying through the classroom. Um, it's a problem. And uh, the teachers' unions have called for the return of contact tracing. But the other side, the other argument is it's not necessary because the children are not at risk. And Tony Hollands' insistence, I have it here somewhere for the paper this morning. Wait a while. Give me a second. I'll find it. Yeah. He was saying that he doesn't believe COVID-19 transmissions is uncommon. He said he's conscious that parents and guardians will be concerned about the high level of incidence, but as winter approaches, NEFET is monitoring the level of incidence and closely reviewing the data. Uh, International evidence tells us that in the vast majority of Cases children who become infected experience mild symptoms or are asymptomatic. The public health advice is based on scientific evidence and the direct experience of the pandemic. It shows that child-to-child transmission is uncommon in school settings where there are preventive measures in place like those that are in our schools. He said schools are vital to the health and well-being of our children. That's the present advice from Tony Holland Jack O'Keefe of Ireland AM fame, their TV chef, has been with us a few times on the programme. And we're hoping to talk to him a couple of times between now and Christmas because preparation is everything. The last thing you want is to be realising on the 22nd or 23rd of December, oh my God, I have nothing done. So you can start preparing now,
3: can't you, Jack? Good morning. Good morning. PJ, I know I say this every time I come on air with yourselves, but your accent is so refreshing to hear. When I'm perched here in my office in Leopardstown in Dublin, when I hear that beautiful Cork accent, it just gives me goosebumps and reminds me of home. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Well, you haven't lost your own now, lad, to be fair. uh, When I hear yours, it comes back.
4: (laughs) (laughs) So, look, seven weeks Friday is Christmas Eve. What practical preparations can we be starting to make at this stage?
3: I know this is going to make a lot of people depressed when we're using the C words so early. Halloween is only over by a few hours, so we're already bringing it up. But look, like there is, there's tons to do, and I'm the king of leaving everything to the last minute. And then I tell... Then I tell the audiences and I tell everyone that listens to me, well, that's willing to listen to me, to be prepared, me's en place, get everything ready, and there's me then last minute freaking out on uh, on Christmas Eve going, I have nothing ready, but look, this is why we're having this conversation. And for people at home, like, the best thing you can do now on the build-up to Christmas is kind of start thinking, get online, get your favorite cookbooks out, get the old classic books out, and start looking at what your options are, what you're thinking of doing, how many people you're going to have over, what do they like? What don't they like? And what styles of the food they like? And kind of plan a menu and then plan what we'd call a prep list off of that. Now, I'm not going to keep going on that conversation because it's going to overcomplicate things and mm. freak people out and they'll end up ordering a Christmas dinner from their local takeaway. But, which is nothing wrong with that either. I can't be at a, an old snack box on Christmas Day if you can get one. Uh, you might have to get it the day before and in a microwave a Christmas oh, day. Stop, but look- <laughs> oh,
1: stop,
3: Here, I'm a chef. You know I'm a connoisseur of fine kebabs. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, come here. So what you can do now is is the basics, is the stuff that's easy to slip into the freezer, the stuff that's not a star ingredient on the day. Because you don't want to be freezing good food, you know what I mean? You don't want to be banging good products that you pick up in the English market into a freezer. No, there's nothing wrong with it, but look, it kills the flavor a little bit. But what I'd recommend is do things like your stock so that you can make really awesome sauces and gravies. I guarantee you most of the listeners out there are going to be having a roast chicken between here and Christmas, right? Mm-hmm. When you're finished with that roast chicken and that chicken carcass, rather than bunging it into the compost heap, put it back into your oven, roast it off till you get those bones nice and dark and crispy right. and caramelized. To get a big stock pot or saucepan, your your the saucepan you'd use for ham on Christmas, or even a one that's smaller than it, take those chicken bones, bang them into the, uh, bang them into the saucepan with some, with some carrots, onions, garlic, celery, um, turn it onto a high heat, get it all browned off together, crushing up the bones with the veggies and everything, mm. banging a bit of rosemary or thyme if you have it knocking it around in your garden. And then what I like to do is I just like to put a little bit of red wine in, tomato paste, mm-hmm. and then I fill it up with water and then just leave that simmer for about two to three hours. Right. After two to three hours, turn it off, leave it infused overnight, the following day, strain it. Put that in, once it's cold, pour it into Ziploc bags or leftover lunch boxes or Chinese takeaway boxes or whatever you have. Yeah. Ziploc bags are my favorite because when they freeze, if you freeze them flat in the freezer, they turn into almost like record discs and you yeah. can stack them in your freezer in like a, like an old uh, shelf inside in golden discs. Um, That's and clever. Just put your stock in there and then Christmas Eve or the, on the 23rd, take them out and then you have fantastic roast chicken jus, ready to make the best gravy in the world. That's one thing you can do. The other thing you can do is... And tell
4: me, do do you let them thaw
3: naturally or do you microwave them? That's the big question of it. Let them thaw naturally on a tray or in a bowl just in case that the plastic on the Ziploc leaks or has ripped in the freezer and you wake up in the morning and there's stock all over your shelf (laughs) and the dog is licking up lovely chicken jus off the floor, having the best breakfast of his life. But... Just, yeah, just put them on a plate or something. Don't microwave them. It's fine. If you forget to defrost them, of course, you can bang it into the microwave. Don't worry Mm. about it. Mm. Just watch. Make sure the plastic that you've stored in is microwave friendly. Mm.
4: Um, Well, no, the, the reason I said about the microwave is, you know, the way the microwave's natural instinct is boil everything.
3: You'll really spoil it if you boil it. You can, like you could overcook it and you could ruin it and you could take away the flavour but just throw it onto the defrost setting in a microwave, it's fine, yeah. you know but again, if you defrost it overnight in the fridge, it's fine and at room temperature like most kitchens nowadays are 20, 21, 22 degrees Celsius like yeah. something like that will defrost in the bones of four hours on a countertop so it'll be yeah. fine um, Sh- Should you
4: be doing cakes and puddings this week? Or thinking about that's it?
3: That's too late You should have been doing it in August Get away from me <laughs> Oh well, yeah, sorry, uh, so I don't valde again, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I know a few pastry chefs and bakers who make their Christmas cakes in December for the following year. Well wow. yeah. anything that's anything that's stored that long in a cabinet, you shouldn't be eating. Like you know I hate Christmas cake and, and mince pies, but it's a it's a tradition and it's things people like. I just don't like raisins and that's the only reason I don't like Yeah. But, can you yeah, make your own mince pies? I don't, to be honest, because I don't, I don't see the value in making them because I don't enjoy them. And I'm not going to cater for the rest of the family and watch them enjoy <laughs> these awesome mince pies. And I'm just there going, whatever. I'm going yeah. to sit here eating my tiramisu <laughs> or my Black Forest ghetto. Um, but, like, yeah, you, you, look, you can make them now perfectly fine. Just put a little bit extra uh, jemison on top of it or Middleton Rare if you want. Um, and it'll be perfectly fine by the time you come up to Christmas. The other thing I would do is your herb gardens that everyone planted during the lockdown... Mm. are just about to start dying off now as you come into the really cold weather. So to save all that rosemary, thyme, parsley, whatever you have growing out there, make these little, I call them little herb cubes in your freezer using an ice cube tray. So basically take your herbs, pull them off the wood, pop them into the ice cube trays, pour in olive oil or melted butter and bang them into your freezer. And then on Christmas Day, you can basically use these herb infusions. You see them in the supermarkets, herb Mm. infusions there. I think Noah do them or something, they're like little jelly stockpots. You can make your own. They're oh yeah, you yeah, put them in with rice actually. When you when you when you a bit of rice, you throw into in exactly, up, yeah. exactly. Um, can you imagine those? You imagine the buttery ones. Butter, rosemary, and thyme melt together in ice cube tray, and you're you're folding it through freshly mashed potato on Christmas Day. <laughs> it's this instant. When you taste something, you go, "That's missing something." Just enough butter, enough herbs into anything, and it's fixed. Mm. Come here before you I know, let
4: you go. This time we'll talk <laughs> again before the
3: Christmas. Is there going to be?
4: Because I've been hearing people say, get into your butcher now and order your bird and order your ham. Because is there going to be a shortage, Jack, do you think?
7: From
3: what we are hearing in the industry, there might be. The um, The stock levels of turkeys and stuff on farms aren't as high as they were. And look, I try not to think about it too much because I don't want to kind of, kind of get too worried. But yeah. what I always do is... I would contact your local butcher. The supermarkets will, will sort themselves out because yes. they always do because they're businesses and they want to make money off you. So they're going to sort themselves out. But with your local butchers, you know, guaranteed, like all you people in Cork, you're so lucky having the English market. Pop into Tom Durkin or the Chicken Inn or any of the lads inside mm. there. Book your turkey or your ham now, get it sorted. Or your North Cork, get into, get into McCarty's in Kenturk, Get your black pudding order, get your ham order. They will have them. Look, if you give them enough notice now, yeah. I would be getting in there now get it done and then that way then you're not you're getting a really good quality bird that has and this is the most important part right not about the price of the bird the size of the bird it's the quality of life that that turkey or pig has had before it ends up in your dinner table mm-hmm. that's the best thing about Christmas get out there spend that 10 euro extra and get a bird that you know has been free range grass fed etc and so that they live a good happy life and mm-hmm. in that way it makes your stomach you good, you happy. can taste
4: you can genuinely taste the difference Jack and I, I'll, I'll give you that you genuinely can taste the difference
3: Exactly. And you know what? It, 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 it's a list of a, a, a. As humans, we consume too much meat. We know that we're too we're too excessive about everything to do. But if you do your own little part, I suppose, and if you do eat meat, you eat the best quality meat that you can find. And as you local as you can get it. Exactly And you're supporting local pockets Which will support your pocket again Then back It all goes around Circle right. of life And the circle of money It's all connected Alright Come here I, I see this thing Now it's been around for a while But for some reason It's after
4: hitting the newspapers Have you seen this thing Where Heinz Are putting An entire Christmas
3: dinner Into a can Look I read the description on it, on, on, Online I think it was The Guardian Had an article on it And to be honest It actually reminded me Of something you'd see In a footpath Outside Havana's And Ragweed And <laughs> oh. You know, like it's just when they said pieces of Brussels sprouts suspended in soup with meat, mi- with li- little mini chunks of pigs and blankets. What? What? Why would I want to put a pigs and in blanket inside in a soup? Like, and then and then, have you seen the price they're selling it for? <laughs> so no. Anything that's one pound fifty. <laughs> it's not good
4: for you. <laughs> it's not Christmas dinner. like Jack, we'll talk again between this and the big day. Jack O'Keefe, uh, Ireland AM uh, TV chef. Thanks, Jack. 1850, 715996. Love that idea with the stock, though. Love that idea with the stock. The chicken and boil it down and strain it off and put it and freeze it. And 1850, eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. There's a picture of it, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I do want... <laughs> horse it all into a saucepan and you boil it up or you microwave. it God, the very thought 1850 715 996
2: Can we just talk? The
4: Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM With
1: McCarthy Insurance Group Call in person or call them now They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. C-M-I-G Can we just talk?
2: The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. Oe
1: 96 96 96.
4: On courts 96 FM. The event that comes up uh, in the month of November and has gained huge support over the years, had to be done virtually, of course, uh, last year, was the Run in the Dark, organised by the Mark Pollock Trust. It's coming up again. Paula Cuniff is their CEO and joins me. Paula, good morning.
15: Morning. How are you doing?
4: Good. Will it be? Will it be virtual again this year?
15: It will. Unfortunately, um, the event takes months and months of planning. So unfortunately, we had to make the call on it earlier in the summer, and it was just too soon to know. Thankfully, things are looking well, you know, in terms of events happening, but we unfortunately had to make that decision early. So it'll be virtual. Everybody will be able to download our app and they can choose their own run route and run 5K or 10K. The difference between this time, uh, this year and last year is that they could actually meet up with a small group of friends and go and do the run together and go for a pint afterwards. Last year, unfortunately, most people were running on their own. Mm.
4: Tell me a bit about the history of the the event and of course the Mark Pollock Trust
15: so The Run in the Dark was set up originally by friends and family of Mark Pollock, in case your listeners don't know Mark's story. He went blind 22 years ago from detached retinas and unfortunately had a a catastrophic accident, fell from a second story window about 12 years ago and broke his back. So he's now blind and paralyzed while he was still in hospital, friends and family set up, run in the dark. That was 11 years ago now, and it's grown from an event just within Ireland to 25,000 people all around the world taking part. So it's a bit like New Year's Eve, PJ. We sweep the globe at 8 p.m. all around the world on one night in November.
8: Mm.
4: And and it raises money, of course. And what, is, what what's the fundraisers for?
15: Exactly. So it's a fundraising run for the Mark Pollock Trust, and we have a charity now called Collaborative Cures. So, when Mark was in hospital, he was told. This is it. There's no point hoping for a cure. But that wasn't the mindset that had gotten him from going blind at age twenty two to racing to the South Pole ten years later. So Mark started to question, well, why is that? Like, why can't we cure paralysis when all these amazing things are happening in healthcare? Like, look what happened with the the vaccines in the last year, year and a half. So um We've been working to try and cure paralysis and and make a contribution towards that for the last 10 years or so. And what we've noticed is that there's a huge amount of fragmentation. So people are covering their copy books, right? They're not sharing their findings. They're not working together. So where we add value is that we bring people together Mm. and we try and get them to collaborate and work together. So that's really the focus of, of what we do. We've worked on projects valued at over kind of 15 million euro over the last 10 years and Mark does that himself and then we have this charity now Collaborative Cures scaling the work that Mark's been doing mm. over the last 10 years
4: and, and what, where are we with regard to the, the research Paul I've heard Mark speak mm. about this and he makes an incredibly powerful point that there is so much work going on on various elements of what causes paralysis and, and, and its effect on the body. Where are we in terms of... I, I suppose we'll never be able to sort of give someone an injection and it'll all go away. But, but, but where are we as regard to at least improving the situation?
15: That's exactly it. There's no magic tablet that some, someone will be able to take if they if they have a spinal cord injury or some sort of paralysis. But it's definitely going to be a cocktail of interventions. It's going to be a number of things coming together. So a lot of people will have seen Mark over the years walking in his robotic legs, his exoskeleton. Yes. They're amazing from a, a rehab point of view. So to get, imagine sitting down all day, you know, I mean, it's not an easy thing to do. So to be able to stand and walk has an amazing uh, both health and mental mental health benefits for people who have some form of paralysis or other neurological conditions, MS, for example. So we have a number of exoskeletons doing research. We also have one in Dublin in DCU, um, that where people can go and use it and research is being done as part of that. But other really interesting, um, interventions we've been working with one is called electrical stimulation of the spine where they um, basically stimulate your nervous system on the skin of your spine so it's not implanted it's on the skin and that's going to be available for people to buy within the next 18 months which is hugely exciting so we've been working with For years, and the company in the um, US merged with a company in Europe, and they're nearly—they went into IPO actually. To the week, so that means basically a ton more funding behind them. So within the next eighteen months, that will be able to to be bought to be used in clinics. This is like trying to short circuit the break. It, it does. It kind of supercharges the nervous system. And it's amazing, especially for people with a higher level of paralysis. So if you have limited use of your hands, when people have this electrical stimulation, they're able to open the cap of a bottle. They're able to wow. zip up their, their jacket or button, their jumper. They're able to feed themselves. I mean, it, it's actually huge for people with, with the higher level of paralysis. For people, so Mark is paralyzed from the waist down. When he walked in his robot and was had the electrical stimulation turned on, they kind of, he could feel his legs, not the way we can now, but he could feel the meat in his legs and the muscles that were totally wasted away started to come back. So this is a really exciting Piece of tech, and it'll be, you know, really good for people with lots of different different levels of paralysis or spinal cord injury. So, very excited about that, yeah. and lots of other work going on around nerve bridging, which is damaging or repairing the damaged spinal cord yeah. a little bit further off.
4: Science, the science of it is is fascinating, and I've heard mm. Mark speak about it a couple of times. Paula, you also have a very interesting survey here, uh, in conjunction with the whole run in the dark.
15: Hmm. Yeah, so we were we wanted to see how people were getting on in lockdown, how it had affected their mental and their physical health. The, a couple of interesting things. A lot of people uh, took up w- walking, you know, and so I was, you'd think running, but there were people running, but huge amount of people getting out and their activity and their exercise was walking. I mean, getting out in the air is just amazing for both mental and physical health. So I was delighted to, to hear that. I think we some people found it difficult with team training, with gyms being closed that their physical training worsened. So 43% of people said their physical training worsened. But um, I suppose what's interesting for us, particularly, you know, people talk about Mark a lot and they talk about resilience and how does he do it? You know, and how does yeah. he keep going? Well, 61% of, of the people surveyed said they're feeling more resilient now than before lockdown. And I think what it was is we always had that resilience there. But when you have to really dig deep and and use it, you know, I think the last year has shown us how resilient we can all be as individuals and as communities. Um, So we're hoping that people who have been walking, have been running, will do the run in the dark with us this November.
4: Yeah, it it is true though, wasn't it? Because when we kind of had nothing else to do, particularly in the first very severe lockdown in the spring Mm. of 2020, we literally had nothing else to do except walk around the block.
15: That's it. And um, if you remember back in, you know, the very early stages within 2K of the block. So, yeah, I think, you know, there was, I heard a lot of people saying they found all these amazing things in their locality that they never knew existed That's before. Right. So hopefully it was a good way for people to reconnect a little bit with where they live and um, and just get outside. Because, you know, when you're working from home, as a lot of people still are It's very difficult um, to find the motivation sometimes. You're stuck behind your desk. I think we work harder at home than a lot of the times we did in the office because we'd be having the interactions and the coffees and going for the meetings. So it is so important that people get out and get that fresh air and take those Mm. breaks. You know, we talk about it. The other side of the business is, is Mark speaking and we get brought into organizations to talk about how can you be high performing? And one of the biggest things you need to do is step away from the computer. Every hour or two hours, five minutes, or 10 minutes, go stand outside, open the window, you know, get away from your screen, make a cup of coffee and then, then we take these longer breaks which mm. would, could be the weekend, sleeping, getting out, doing your yoga or sea swimming as I know lots of people love, you know, going for a walk, going for a run so mm. if we want to feel our best we need to be doing that stuff as well
4: I'm reading one of the one or two of the findings here in front of me as well, I find Paula, that a lot of people do not want to go back completely to where yeah. we were in 2019, there are certain things <clears throat> that they actually have taken to, and like yeah,
15: I mean only f- yeah, f- only 40 percent of people want plan to return to the office when lockdown ends. I mean, anecdotally, a lot of friends telling me they're thinking of leaving the city and looking at living a different way and being able to work remotely. So I think there's been a big change to how people approach different things, whether it's like that exercise or whether it's, you can imagine going back to the hour or the hour and a half commute five days a week, having spent successfully the last year and a half at home and still being able to do our work. So it'll be very interesting to see as things change in the next, as it's spring. I think the government's talking about return to offices, what that looks like. I think we're definitely looking at a hybrid model. There's no doubt about that. Okay. But yeah, and in Dublin, even even fewer people want to go back.
4: <laughs> Come back to Run in the Dark, lastly. Uh, if people want to enter a register, wh- what do they do?
15: So they go to runinthedark.org. It's a 5K or a 10K. You can walk it or you can run it everyone will basically get their run pack um, couriered out to them. We're working with Fastway Couriers this year as our partner. They'll get their pack with their medal, their flashing armband and their bandana uh, before the run. And then on the day, they'll download the Run in the Dark app and use that to time themselves. And then when they finish, PJ, they join a global leaderboard. So we're still, even though we're apart, we're still a global community and you'll be able to see how you rank compared to people taking part all over the world.
4: Okay, it's 32 euro to enter and all of those things come as part of the entry. Paula, good to speak with you, that's Paula Conniff CEO of Run in the Dark runinthedark.org if you want to register, get involved and be part of that. It's a huge event remember in previous years when you could do it if you came into town on the night of the Run in the Dark and didn't know it was on, you'd wonder who are all these guys running around that's what they were at 1850 715 996 just before I go, I want to read this and it's it's food for thought, and we might come back to it. Uh, on the phone, someone says, I lived six months in the Canaries. I'm back a month. You hear nothing about it there. People should stop their obsession with it. I don't agree with that obsession. I'm sorry we came back in a way, apart from my daughter's birthday party, which I was delighted to be here for. I'm not one of these conspiracy theorists that don't think people didn't die, or that it's not a dangerous disease, or that people shouldn't get vaccinated. But... It is a disease that will be here for a long time or possibly forever. We've learned a lot of things and now it's time to apply that learning and just adjust. I think the conspiracy theorists do have one thing right. The government are using the focus on COVID to manipulate emotions and keep the debate away from topics that embarrass them and to introduce things that they were trying to bring in anyway. If you've any thoughts on that... And finally, Siobhan was on. Could PJ say on the radio today to ask people to tune in to RTE2 tonight at half nine for John Connor's Acting Academy? My son Daniel got a part in it. That's Siobhan Maureen Power. Happy to do that. And also this Friday coming, the inaugural Mass to Remember Cork Dockers will be held in St. Peter's and Paul's Church at half eleven. My name is Liam Corcoran. I'm spokesman for the group Remembering Cork Dockers if you require any further information Thank you for that Liam And that's pretty much it The programme today Edited by Fiona Corcoran Produced and researched by Fergal Barry See you tomorrow Just after nine
2: Can we just talk
4: The Opinion Line
2: On Cork's 96FM
1: With McCarthy Insurance Group Call them now For motor, home, business, farm Life and health insurance CMIG.ie
5: <laughs>